back when they had this this custom of, of cannibalism, what they would do in this area, they'd agree to meet at a certain date, a certain time, and people from these different tribes, I think that's the level here, it's not clan, so I think the clans would fight together, but tribes would go against each other. So these different tribes would come together and they would line up single file. So you'd have these warrior men who are lining up single file. One person is holding a spear and the leader of the group is in the front. And if you're the, the group that's having the spear being thrown at you, you're following the leader because he's looking directly at the guy with the spear across from them. And he can see where the spear is about to go. So he'll duck, say, to the down and to the left. And then everyone in that single file line has to follow the person in front of them, make sure that they match their movements, because otherwise... You're getting hit with a spear. You get hit with a spear, and that spear has poison on the end of it. So you get if you get stuck with a spear, the custom was that you just lay down and you just wait for death. It's not you know honorable to run away with this, even if you could survive. Um, and they're able to just kind of drag you away, and then that's 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 the meal. Hello, and welcome to Tomversations. That's T H O M Versations, where the H makes all the difference. A podcast of stories, experiences, and knowledge. I'm Tom Cocaine, your host. How the H are you? It's been so long. I haven't talked to you in a long time. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying the holiday season. It's been a pretty good one for me. I've really had a good time. A lot of travel, seeing a lot of family, and it's been all good. One minor incident, but yeah, it's all good. Um, and a new year, you know, that's always an exciting time. I got to say, I'm looking forward to another great year ahead. In 2019, you know, you think back on the year, you know, it had some ups and downs. But as it draws to a close, I'm feeling positive about my future. Not so much positive about other futures, you know. But, um... You know, when was the last time uh, you get to think about what you've done in the past and you're looking forward to the future? And uh, I think it looks good. I think my future looks great. I've, I've got no real major issues, no major concerns that are, you know, really taxing me. And that's awesome. You know, that's really awesome. Uh, but, uh, you know, somebody who's working hard and... Uh, puts their life on the line. When was the last time you put your life on the line for something, for anything? How about to study something? Well, today's podcast is with Jordan Borsma. He is a PhD candidate at Washington State University. He studies white-shouldered fairy wrens. It's a type of bird, a type of wren. And he goes through some harrowing adventures to study them. He travels to some remote places in New Guinea. Okay, New Guinea itself is pretty remote, but he goes to remote places in New Guinea, and he has got some stories to tell, you know, like the one you heard in the intro, and that's just a taste of what you'll hear, and he tells you a lot. You're going to learn a lot about people, about culture, biology, mating rituals, uh, weird food, <laughs> pirates, yeah, pirates. He's got uh, some good tales to tell, so, you know, stick around to the end. You won't be disappointed. And i uh, got to say that this podcast is late. It's very late. I know it. I'm not going to make excuses for the tardiness of this one, but 
Now, there are some factors at play, like namely the holidays and travel, you know, some for gathering, some not, but time away from home is also time away from the studio. And this particular podcast is over three hours long. Three hours. That's a lot. And that's fine. I want to have long-form conversations with people. I really do. But there is a time commitment that goes into editing these podcasts. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. The first thing is I listen to the recorded audio. And the first listen takes about three times longer than the recorded length of the audio. Why? Well, that's due to the closeness of the listening. I'm really listening intently. And I pause and make edits like for a cough or a sneeze, or maybe we stop and use a toilet, you know, whatever. I edit that stuff out. So in this case, the initial listening was about nine hours of time. Yeah. And so also what you hear is basically the entire talk as we did it. But um, I do edit it. Okay. But then after the first listen, I listen to it again. Then after that, that's when I make changes to sound, like the volume, I add my intro, the outro, music, etc., etc. So you can see this takes a lot of time for one person to do. That's it. It's me. I, I do it all, right? And, you know, that's kind of the basics, but you know, how can it be done differently? Could it be done differently? Sure. I, I would love to know how I could speed up the process, but... You know, could I have somebody else edit it? Yeah, but not really. You know, the show is the show because of how I edit it. You know, what I choose to keep, what I choose to delete. That kind of makes conversations, uh, conversations. And I got to say, I want to keep doing this podcast. I want to do it for a long time, as long as it remains fun. And uh, so far, so good. And you know what else is good? Good beer. Where do you get good beer? You know, the sponsor of the show, the Moscow Brewing Company. They're located right here in Moscow, Idaho, in the United States of America. And they are committed to creating the highest quality ales from ingredients that are found throughout the inland northwest. Like locally grown hops and grains. But it's the quality of flavor and that consistent quality that leaves you wanting more. Stop in today. They've got a great selection of ales. They've got IPAs, stouts, everything in between. Check out Moscow Brewing Company on Facebook and at Moscow Brewing on Instagram. I am so glad that you are listening today. This is a long podcast, so let's get to it. Uh, Here is Jordan Borsma. Other than that, Mike, we're ready to go. You good? I think I'm good. Okay, so um, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, so I'm Jordan Borsma. I'm a PhD candidate in Hubert Schwabel's lab at Washington State University. Ooh, what a name. Yeah. Herbert Schwabel? Huber, Hubert Schwabel. Whoa. Yeah. Not Hubert. Not Hubert. 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 I think that's the German pronunciation of, of Hubert. Wow. That's my understanding. Okay. Yeah. Hubert Schwabel. Yeah. What a name. Hubert Schwabel. Wow, that's almost as good as Tom Cocaine. Yeah, right? <laughs> almost, almost as catchy. Not, not quite there. Uh, right. I imagine he would say like Schwabel, uh, but okay. he's been in the U.S. for a while. So. Is he still alive? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he's he's 
mid, I think maybe mid 60s. Um, oh, kind of a younger getting guy, really. T- toward the end of his career, I think. Yeah. Um, so I'm his last PhD student. Oh. Um, but yeah, he's he's great to work with. I've been really lucky to get a position to work in his lab and be the last one to be trained by him. Cool. And uh, your your focus is uh, biology, right? My focus is biology. Yeah, specifically specifically traits in birds, but traits that can kind of generalize out to to other animals as well. So I'm I'm studying female ornamentation, which is like a, a common occurrence in birds, but also in lizards and other reptiles and amphibians. Ornamentation. Um, What's ornamentation? What, like so being what? being elaborately colorful. Hmm. Um, so in birds, you know, it's usually very colorful feathers. It can be really colorful bare skin as well. Um, hmm. so some species like cassowaries, I don't know if you've ever seen a, yeah, cassowary, cassowary. That's, isn't that a thing with like a great big claw? Yes. And they're yeah. really dangerous in Australia. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's one, there's one known death from Australia <laughs> from a cassowary. There's one recently in the U S wow. by someone who had one as a pet. And this actually, well, it brings us to New Guinea, um, where I've been doing my research on a different species, but cassowaries are relatively abundant still there. Um, so they're in like New wild? Guinea and Australia. Yeah. Okay. And that's um, big we, too. They're like six feet they're tall. They're huge. Yeah. So in some cases, so I had one chase me in Australia that was a little bit taller than I was. So they say they only get up to six feet tall. I'm six one something. Um, and so I was told that you just, you extend yourself as much as you can and if they see that you're taller than them, that they won't charge. But I got a little bit too close to this uh, one at a national park in Australia. It stood up and I you know, made myself as tall and big as I could be. It extended its neck a little bit further and it was definitely looking down <laughs> on oh, me. We were, you know, at this point, like five feet away from each other and it started charging. So I just turned and just ran. Wow. Uh, yeah, it wasn't quite as dramatic as it sounds. It, it chased me for probably, you know, like five to 10 seconds, but it was enough to get my heart racing. You think? I got out to the, to the park road and then turned around and it had already stopped running. I had friends there with me, so it's not like I was one-on-one with this thing. Oh, so you could have just um, left them behind. and I, I did leave them <laughs> behind, yeah. <laughs> and I was the tallest one there too, so I thought, all right, I'm good. No way, no way it's going to chase me. Um, right. So anyway, so they're, they're, hot, they're endangered in Australia. Um, there's only one species there. In New Guinea, there's three different species I've only seen one of those species in New Guinea, and it's the same one that's in Australia, same species, and that's mm-hmm. the, the tallest, biggest one. Um, and it's a common food source. So oh, really? at one of my field sites, I've had them, we actually had one walk past our house. Um, so we were walking back from the field uh, at the end of the morning, and we saw this young cassowary just kind of walking with us, um, probably like 20 feet away. We just assumed it was someone's pet that had escaped because they hold them in captivity until they're ready to have a big feast. Um, but we talked with all of our friends in that area and they said, no, this, this didn't escape from any of our pens. Wow. Um, this was a wild cassowary uh-huh. that was just out exploring. So because it was a young individual, it's trying to find its territory probably. Hmm. Um, so it had wandered quite a ways out of the forest because we live out kind of in the grassland. Um, and this cassowary just wandered out of the forest and I think was looking for, you know, the next, next patch of forest that maybe is, is not occupied by a cassowary that has the fruit that they need. Um, and 
yeah, the, the poor cassowary walked right by our house. We had some people, our friends hanging out at our house, our neighbors. And one of them was this big guy from Fiji who had moved to this village because uh, he married someone in the village. And he chased after this cassowary the second he saw it. So it got to our house. He saw us looking at it because it was me and a couple of my collaborators at the time. We were all looking at it with binoculars. So he knew that there was something of interest. He saw this cassowary took off running after it. It starts running. He ends up stopping because he, uh, our friend, because he like dives into this marsh that's in between him and the cassowary. The cassowary just, you know, keeps running through it. And some of the dogs that hung out around our house ended up tracking it down and, and killing it. Cause they're trained specifically to, to hunt cassowaries. Cause that's such a main, uh, main food source there. Wow. Kind of like uh, turkeys might be around the United States. Kind of like turkeys here. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're wild out here right. in the United States in the Northwest. A massive, a massive colorful turkey. Well, I guess turkeys are quite colorful as well. Yeah. And they can um, be big, but they're not cassowary big. Not cassowary but, big. But I'm thinking that's, yeah. that's a big bird that we, you can go and hunt and it, it's a feast when you eat a Sure. Like that. Yeah. yeah, and a cassowary, um, you know, being six feet tall and having, you know, it's this is a bird that uh, is unable to fly. It's it's just walking on two very powerful. If you think about it, it's, it's kind of like a, an ostrich. It's like it's, an ostrich. It's from or the emu. ostrich family or an emu. Yeah, I mean, are they kind of the same family? They're, same they're, kind they're of bird? closely related. Um, not not the same family, but closely related. Okay, they kind of um, look similar. It'd be more closely related, I guess, to emus because ah. emus are in Australia. Oh, okay, yeah, um, yeah. Or emu, I guess, is how the the Australians say it. Okay, um, and it's their bird. So I've actually, I've had some Australian friends who get upset with me for saying emu because it's it's theirs. Emu. So they say emu. Emu. Yeah. Okay. So emu. so they have it right because it's you know it's a bird that's from their territory, yeah. right? So anyway, so the the cassowary we've actually so. I've mostly tried to avoid eating cassowary, even though it's a main protein source in New Guinea, um, because they are endangered in Australia. And I think the same thing, I think, is probably likely to happen in New Guinea Mm -hmm. um, because they require. So I I don't study cassowary, so I I can't fully speak to, you know, their their requirements. But they do require, you know, a pretty big area with a lot of fruiting trees and that fruit has to fall down to the ground because they're not climbing trees and they can't fly. Mm-hmm. So it has to fall down to the ground for them to be able to, to get this fruit. And so they, they require a pretty big, healthy uh, fruiting forest. And so they're very sensitive to any sort of human disturbance. Um, so I've tried to communicate to my friends in New Guinea that, hey, you know, you guys do what, what you're going to do with your resources. This is your land. Um, but, you know, just so you know, you know, this, this protein resource could go away over time like it has in Australia. Now, no one hunts them in Australia because they're endangered. They're heavily protected. There's only about, I think it's less than 100 left in the wild. Mm. Um, not very many. And the ones that are left are very tame now. So I've seen them a handful of times in Australia. They'll just come and approach you and just beg for food. Wow. In New Guinea, they do not do that, of course, because they associate humans with just imminent danger and so the second they see a human they they're bolting yeah because um, some so, big guy from fiji's gonna change exactly <laughs> yeah some big rugby <laughs> rugby player yeah um yeah so they they are they are very skittish in new guinea so i've in addition to that one that was kind of unusual that wandered through i guess our yard it doesn't really feel like a yard there but i suppose that would count as a yard um i've seen them in the forest uh just once but we had to be really really sneaky um, because you just, you just have to kind of camp where you see their tracks and you see fruit falling to the ground. 
we built a a blind. One of our local friends built a blind for us. So he just moved all this vegetation around to, to where we're hidden behind it. Um, and then we just waited for it to come in. Uh, but that's, that's all an aside to what I was trying to say, which is that <laughs> I've been trying to avoid eating these cassowaries, but in New Guinea, you can't, you can't be too selective about what you're going to eat, especially when it comes to protein, because there aren't a lot of protein sources. So when you get that opportunity, you just kind of have to go with it. And this past field season, I had people serve me cassowary a couple times, um, including on, on our big going away party. Is it good? Uh, it's really good. Yeah. It's really good, unfortunately. Very tasty. Uh, yeah, it's very tasty. Mm. And uh, my local friends had told me many times when I asked them what their favorite food was, a lot of them say cassowary. Wow. Because it's sort of a hybrid between, between uh, I don't know, I guess a game bird, like a chicken or a turkey, and then beef. You know, it's it's kind of red meat, but not really. It looks more like venison than it does like chicken or turkey. It's, oh, it's a so pretty it's, dark. So it's all reddish it's pretty, meat. Yeah, reddish meat. Interesting. Um, very tender. Uh, Dude, but you think they, you know, in the United States, we could capture those. And then we could have like McDonald's could sell like cassowary nuggets. Cassowary nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the future. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, <laughs> why did I have to have that thought? Conservation And then disaster. say it. Right. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, let, you know, uh, yeah, don't tell the corporations. Shh. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but so you, now, um, now well, I got, we got in contact because... Let's see. I had a, a conversation, a conversation with uh, um, uh, jo- uh, come on, with Jeremiah Bush, and uh, so he, they there was some talk about getting. You had like I don't exactly know what happened there, but somehow my name came up to talk to you about uh, your experiences and what you've been doing. And uh, there, man, there's a, quite a bit of talk about what you've been doing as it being very strange for a biologist to go out and do these field researches that you're doing in some very uh, remote and um, um, uh, unincorporated areas, if that's the word, very rugged. I don't know. Sure. What would you call it? Yeah, yeah. I I would say you know, pretty undeveloped places, I guess, because okay, they, they yeah, are currently, it's definitely a developing country. And, and it's New ro- Guinea. It's Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea um, specifically. So yeah. the island of New Guinea is split between Papua New Guinea and the western side is is Indonesia. So it's called West Papua, or I think more traditionally, Irian Jaya. So that belongs to Indonesia. That's actually a very contentious uh, subject currently because the Indonesian government is uh, trying to maintain their control of that area, and the local people are not... Uh, wanting to be part of Indonesia. Oh. It, it's kind of a raw deal for them. For, for them. Huh, interesting. Um, okay, yeah. But anyway, so I, I work so on the it, Papua New Guinea side where one of the reasons that we're, we're working on that side is that people people tend to speak co- very good English because until a little over 40 years ago, they just had their 40th anniversary, I think, when I was there in 2015. Uh, a little over 40 years ago, they were still part of Australia. So they go through a very Australian um, style of primary school, I guess. Um, and it, it typically their schooling is in English. So the kids learn English at a very young age. So it's, it's easy to go there and, and be able to, you know, work directly with local people who own the land um, and recruit them as members of a research team because we're able to communicate with them. 
And they, of course, know the land better than anybody. They own the land. They hunt on the land. They know the birds, every bird on their land, typically. Um, they know every animal on their land. I mean, they are very in tune to what's on their land because they live off of it. So um, they, they know the natural environment very well. They know the natural environment very well. So it's, it's convenient as a biologist because you can show up to a new village that no researcher has ever gone to. Maybe no white person has even gone to before, but people will speak English and you can show them a you know, bird identification guide, f- flip through the pages with, with them, and they can tell you exactly what's there. So if you're looking for a particular species, you'll, you'll know within you know, 30 minutes of arriving to a village whether or not it's, you know, it's, it's in that area, um, which is essential because there are not a lot of biologists who, are, who have gone there historically. There definitely are you know, quite a number, but relative to other countries, it's, it's pretty low. And certainly currently there aren't a lot going there. So the information is pretty uh, tentative for, for New Guinea. So you can kind of lean on the local people because they tend to be very friendly. You can communicate with them and they know their, their, the, the fauna um, very well. So it's really convenient for, for people like me. Yeah, um, for doing research. You know, it's uh, okay. So, uh, just to give people perspective, because I, I I'm like, okay, I kind of know in my head where Papua New Guinea is, but I'm not sure. So, but it's basically it's above. You look at think of Australia and then go north of Australia, and that's it's a fairly big island. That's right. It's it's the the third biggest island in the world. Third or second? Oh, I sh- I should definitely. Third, second. I, yeah. I mean, you third, know, third or second. But you better no, know I first. Remember. You know, you're going to be. <laughs> so it's it's everybody Greenland. forgets second and third. It's Greenland, and I think um, I think it might be yeah second. But any anyway, um, yeah. it's it's a it's a relatively big island. Yeah, just north of um, the Cape York Peninsula in Australia. So that that kind of arm of Australia that sticks up in the eastern side. Yeah. Um, in the state of Queensland. So it's just off the. The tip of of is that it just cape. off? Is it really that close? It's really close. Is it? I thought so, it was there further are, away. There are islands. There are, there are islands that extend all the way up to the mainland. Oh, um, of of New Guinea from mm-hmm. from the Cape, and all of those are owned by Australia until you're pretty much within a stone's throw of mm-hmm. of New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I haven't been down to those to those islands in particular, but where one of our field sites is kind of just north of the that. Cape in Australia. So we're working in Western Province is one of the places that we work, which is right on the border with Indonesia, just north of of Cape York in Australia. So actually to get to our field site, we end up following the Fly River, which is this massive, massive river uh, that passes through Indonesia on the way. So as you're going down this river, you see people living on the uh, the Western shores that are part of Indonesia. And in some cases, we've actually seen rebel camps there because people are are fighting the Indonesian government for independence, and they get pushed steadily further and further toward that uh, Papua New Guinea border. Hmm. Um, so you can see these these camps there uh, as as you're going down the, the Fly River. So uh, what is it? So you've got the, the west side of it is Papua New Guinea. Right, the the east side, the east side, the east side. So we're working okay. western, yeah. So and it's almost like I mean, because I, I kind of, I mean, I just did a quick search online, like oh, let's look at that real quick. Sure. And the way they kind of frame it is like it's almost right down the middle, like split just in the middle. Is there like some right. 
Oh, it is. It's like, okay, this said, okay, this, this close area to the here. middle. Yeah, I don't, I don't know no how they like, determine that, but I think the Fly River is a big part of it. Oh, so, okay. So the right. Fly River kind of... That's what I was wondering. Is there some kind of natural border that they go, okay, let's follow this river, this part's, this part's ours, this part's yours? Or Yeah, so from looking at the map, it, it seems like the only... So there is that natural border of the Fly River, uh, but as you go... If you go north of the Fly River, there's not really anything. So that's where that line is just kind of straight. Oh, okay. Um, but where where we go down the Fly River, you can see that the, the border is kind of, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, I guess, kind of squiggly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it is well, following it is this, river, this right? curving, yeah, this endlessly curving river. Um, so we, we have to follow that river for, it's been anywhere from 9 to 27 hours. Uh, to get down to our field site following this river. So we'll fly into this town of Kiunga. Okay, wait, let's, okay, let's back up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure, sure. Let's just back up a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so here you are. So if you've gone there, because um, we talked a little bit. We did some emailing, too. We've had a couple of conversations about to, to kind of warm up to all this. And so you've been going there since 2015, right? Yeah, that's okay, right. Okay, so in the United States. So where, let's say, okay, you're here right now, you're in, uh, you live in Pullman, Washington. So tell me, how do you get there? What's the process to get to where your field site or Papua New Guinea? What's, what do you have to do? Yeah, it's a, it's a very long process, as you could probably imagine. So from Pullman, you know, I'm going to fly out. I've flown out from Pullman, Spokane, and I think maybe even Lewiston to head that way. So from one of those airports, then I typically fly take a couple of flights to get down to LA, to Los Angeles. Uh, in one case, I actually went to Vancouver because there's now a direct flight from Vancouver to Brisbane. But Brisbane is oh. where you end up. Okay, yeah. So you get a round-trip ticket to Brisbane. And then from Brisbane, Brisbane I typically... Brisbane, Australia, for people. Oh, yeah, sorry. Anyway. Brisbane, Australia. Yeah, yeah. Just, just making sure we're all on the same <laughs> yeah. page. I know. I've been there. I've been to Brisbane. Oh, really? So, yeah. Okay. I really like it. Bris Vegas. I've been there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because if you hadn't been there, you probably would have said Brisbane, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, by the way, on, on the I don't remember the main street road, but there's an awesome wine shop there, by the way. Wine shop? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Huge. Like Dan Dan Murphy's? Or, I don't know. wine specific? They, they have these massive... Uh, like alcohol stores, I guess it's kind of like no. Total Wine out here. No, um, this was this was specifically wine. Oh, yeah. Okay. I missed I missed out on that. Yeah, maybe my next trip by I'll have to. Yeah, check and, it the, out. and the uh, the guy who worked there, what do you call the, uh, the guy who knows wine? That's a uh, not a connoisseur. That's the oh, there, there's a name Venturi? for those. Oh, no. Sommelier. Yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, sommelier. Right? Yeah, yeah. The sommelier there was like. I said, look, I'm from the United States. Kind of like I'm fruity, kind of dark. And he goes, well, how much are we going to spend? Like, well, 25 quid. And he's like, okay, all right. This is awesome. Oh, okay. Give me another choice. Well, this one's awesome. So, yeah, go there. Yeah. If it's still there. I mean, that was like, that's been a long time ago since I was there. Yeah, it seems like they've kind of uh, transitioned. Maybe not transitioned, but they've, they've started to do a lot of brewing in that area now. Whereas before, when I went there first, you know, many years ago, there wasn't, wasn't really a brewery culture, but that's started to catch on. Yeah, I don't know if it's at the expense thing. of wine, but I'm, I'm sure people are still um, going there for wine as I well. I mean, we but, still get, there's a lot of imports, I mean, from Australia. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So anyway, so we get to Brisbane. Um, so a round trip ticket to Brisbane. So that takes, you know, generally it takes about, I don't know, somewhere around like 24 hours to get to Brisbane from, from here, you know, with all the layovers and the flights. So the flight from LA is about 
13, 13 just under 14 hours, I think. Yeah, sounds better. It's right. a long flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in Brisbane, uh, generally I have a night or two there. I have some some collaborators there, fortunately, and some friends there now. Um, so I have some good places to, to stay and people to catch up with. And then after kind of resting a little bit in Brisbane, then fly up to Port Moresby, which is the capital of, of Papua New Guinea. So there's a direct flight from Brisbane to, to Port Moresby. How it's often? Every day. Really? Every day. Okay. There okay. are a lot of Australians who do business up there. Okay. Because, you know, I just, uh, okay, uh, uh, I don't know much about, I know, so I know some, I know a lot about a little, you know, like, I think yeah. like a lot of people do. And so sure. I know, or I know a lot, a little about a lot. A little about a lot. That's the, right, both yeah. of those, I think, really. And, um, the so when I think of Papua New Guinea, I think there's like twelve people that live there, you know, <laughs> you know, really, and yeah. all that. But I think there are headhunters, so uh, and you know, cannibals in Papua New Guinea. So you know, when you say, "Oh, there's direct flights and there's a lot of business going on there," I just don't. That just does not even enter my brain. You know, I just don't. I because do, you never hear about Papua New Guinea. I mean, sure. I, when was the last time it came up in the news or? Anything. I mean, maybe in your life it comes up more often, but yeah. So interestingly enough, uh, as far as the news goes, my dad just sent me a text a couple of nights ago. I missed the Democratic debate, but apparently Andrew Yang threw out this stat that the the only two countries in the world that don't have paid uh, maternity leave are the U.S. and Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the only time that I've been aware of in the last, you know. Five years of me making these regular trips out to New Guinea that New Guinea has popped up on a huge stage like that in the U.S. But yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not really things that happen there aren't really relevant to us here in Australia. It's it's not perfectly analogous to Mexico, but it would be kind of similar, maybe. In that you know, a lot of people make regular trips there um, often for business. Some people go there for uh, you know a relatively cheap place to do a vacation. Um, really is there to experience a different culture and okay but there's also it's unfortunately analogous for you know bad reasons too because there is kind of a there can be an an attitude in australia toward papua new guinea that you can you know encounter in the u.s about mexico and the people who come from there Hmm. um because it is a developing country and you know people from there don't have much and it's such a different culture you know there there can be uh yeah some some negative realities to to how i guess people in australia see see that place um especially those who have done a lot of work there and have had bad experiences but then you meet people too in australia who just really love it like i do um and have had nothing but great experiences it it can be certainly a bit dangerous but i I think it's not it's not as dangerous as what people what people think especially nobody's running after you with a machete no one's running after you look tasty no with no. big pots of not, boiling not water and, your, and, and body parts in it. Not anymore. I mean, that was true. You know, that would have been true about 100 years ago. And certainly uh, there are there are cases. I know of cases within even my community and, you know, other researchers who have had very scary experiences there. Um, but for the most part, you know, it's a very friendly, it's the most hospitality I've ever experienced in any country that I've visited. Um, I've been fortunate to do a lot of research out in Southeast Asia and, and around the, uh, South Pacific and also a lot of travel out that way. And it is my favorite country out there. I mean, it's just, people are 
unbelievably friendly and helpful. And you just have, you know, that occasional uh, bad apple who uh, unfortunately carries on this reputation that it's a really violent, really violent place. Yeah, assholes are everywhere. Um, Exactly. I mean, because yeah. you can have the same experience pretty much anywhere, I think, you know, sure. in the world, you know, but I think, yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm I'm more of a, my attitude is more of a, you know, I think people are generally good if you look at what's going on. And, and then there are some people who are assholes. And that's definitely true there. I mean, I think, I think the average person is certainly more friendly and just willing to just help you with whatever you need help with that's there awesome. than they are here. I mean, it's just... I have to That's get, good to hear. I have to get, uh, I have to sort of recalibrate when I come back here to where I'm walking, you know, Main Street in Pullman. So, you know, I, I live in, in Pullman, Washington as a grad student at Washington State. Yeah. Small um, town, like 35,000 people or something like that. Yeah. So as I'm walking, you know, on Main Street, I'm passing people on the street who don't know me and I have to kind of fight this instinct that I have from my time in New Guinea to greet people. Because in New Guinea, if you're walking by someone, you're always going to, you know, at least flash them a smile and a hello potentially stop and just chat with them about what you're up to. Um, but here, you know, that's, that's weird. You know, well, why, why are you invading my bubble oh, um, yeah, when I'm yeah. out, out doing my well, business? It's part of that too, because you, you are so different. I mean, I, I don't know because of your skin color automatically is like, Oh, Hey, there's somebody who's obviously not from here. Maybe they have a more welcoming culture to somebody who's from on the outside. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. So we certainly are, we certainly are a focal point of social interaction there because we are, so unusual because there aren't a lot of people who go to the places that we go to. Um, uh, I should say a lot of foreigners who go to the places in New Guinea that we go to. Um, so that's part of it. You know, we're kind of treated like celebrities in these communities, but it's also true that people are just really friendly to each other. And if you're walking by, you know, one of your, one of the people who's from the same village as you on the street, you know, or out in the bush, you're going to stop and chat with them. Um, but but cir- circling back to um, what you're saying about the the headhunting, um, oh, yeah, <laughs> and the the boiling pot of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's yeah. like the cartoon version, but that's what you know that that's sort of tr- that sort of triggered a, uh, a a memory for me that my first year I was told about this story, which has come up now several times. So I actually think this is this is true. I've heard it from a number a number of pretty reliable sources that some of the first missionaries to come to Papua New Guinea, specifically. One of the provinces that we go to, Milne Bay province, which is on the extreme eastern side of the country. So mm. we work extreme east and extreme west. So in this province that missionaries landed there, and one of the first missionaries was killed. Um, and they left behind a, a big rubber, their, their rubber boots. And the local people there apparently thought that this was part of a white person's foot because they hadn't really seen white people before. So they thought, oh, they just have these mysterious like protrusions on their body. So they boiled, they boiled that, um, in a big pot, uh, and ended up making a stew out of this rubber boot. Apparently, <laughs> I don't think that probably went very well, uh, but I've okay. heard that story now several, several times. And such was the end of cannibalism. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Don't eat that guy. <laughs> Taste is chewy. Yeah. I think that probably, you know, helped, uh, help the cause of the missionaries. That, yeah. Man, this is terrible. <laughs> These people are disgusting. Oh, can you imagine you trying to eat a boot and then like, oh man, I don't feel so good. Ugh. Yeah, the smell alone, just, you know, <laughs> boiling rubber would not be that would not be pleasant. Oh man, that's that's really I you know, it kind of brings you out of your head a bit. 
when you think about just like the, uh, well, that, what's that on your foot? You know, we just yeah. see these things as being things of, of our natural environment, sure. but somebody has never encountered that, you know, like we, you, you speak, it's almost like space aliens. You come down, you're like, what is going on? What is that? What are you wearing? Is right. that, oh, they have, they have, they have skin. They can just throw off and then go in. They have a <laughs> closet full of this stuff. They have a room and they just put on different skins, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yes. so we, actually we were kind of talking about, we kind of, because of that, sorry to get off track and all that, we were, everything was going fine. But, uh, so we were talking about like the, how long it takes to get there. So you just got from, Oh, right. Yeah. Well, you got to Keep Port Moresby. And so how long is that? You're talking about like, is it over, like, and you awake the whole time, like, or, or it's just sleeping on the flights or you go from. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't do well sleeping on, on planes. Yeah, me uh, you know, you're taller than, than me, but I'm, you know. Like taller, taller than the mean, yeah, you know, yeah. and and they don't make those the like coach seats for people who are taller than the mean. Uh, right. So my knees are always, you know, just uh, you know getting pretty stuck up against the seat in front of me. And in front of you is going to uh, lean back and exactly, like, yeah. So I always make sure I right. get an aisle seat because I just do a lot of like stretching in the back. And yeah, dude, me um, too. And I, I I take advantage of the fact that they have you know free free movies on there. So I actually live. Um, Without like Wi-Fi at my place, I'm kind of a, a luddite in the U.S. Um, and that helps me that helps me adapt well to New Guinea because we're you know completely off the grid there. Hmm. So on on the planes, I sort of take advantage of the fact that like all right, I have all this video entertainment that I'm not going to have now for several months. So usually on that really long flight, I'm just kind of binge watching a lot of things. And then yeah, so from from Brisbane, then it's it's only a it's like a four-hour flight to Port Moresby, so it's pretty it's okay. pretty short because yeah. that's it's not a considerable distance. And then from Port Moresby, I usually have to spend a night or two there to kind of get permits sorted out with the government because it's the capital of New Guinea. So what of kind Papua of New permit Guinea. do you need? So I need I need several permits. So I need a a research visa um, for myself that has information about who I am and also information about the project that I belong to and, and what kind of work we're doing. And then I need a, an export permit from the government of Papua New Guinea so that I have authorization to export the samples that I'll be collecting while I'm there. Um, so I need to get that in the works right when I arrive because it takes, everything takes a while there for the government to, uh, to, you know, put their, their seal of, of approval on things. Um, so, is that, so uh, just to kind of, because again, I, I kind of think of it as, a, a, you know, a fairly, you know, an, an up and coming type of culture there. Do they have internet uh, on, on Papua New Guinea or do, how, how is that, how do you get those things that are all on paper and everybody has to put a real stamp on it and a real yeah. signature, et cetera? Yeah. So, so I, I imagine it's one of few places where everything is still being filed uh, with physical copies of things. So they are putting actual stamps on it. They're like, we are writing out our, our study species and the number of samples that we expect to take and the type of samples we're collecting. They're handwriting things on there too. I think they're starting now, I think in the last year, they're starting to shift some of these processes to being uh, electronic. But at least until this last year, everything has been exclusively just filed physically in, in, in filing cabinets. So it's very old school. There, there is internet within within the major ports and within the major cities. They, you know, have decent cell signal, so you can, you know, use internet that way. Wi-Fi is almost non-existent. If you stay at a nice hotel, they'll tell you that you have free Wi-Fi. 
it often doesn't work. So you just have to hotspot your phone's connection to your computer if you want to use the internet. Um, so yeah, it's, it's still, it's still, you know, pretty, pretty far back, I guess, relative to the U S and even relative to neighboring, neighboring countries there. And the people, the people there are very keenly aware that they are, that they're kind of, uh, you know, behind a lot of, in a lot of these ways, they'll, they'll tell us that directly. They're not shy about it. They have a pretty good understanding of, of where they fit within the world and what's happening in other places. Um, people are just read the news very voraciously there. Um, when they go into town, uh, there's, you know, they'll pick up a newspaper and, you know, so they have some, some awareness of the fact that the way they live is, you know, quite different from most countries at this point, Hmm. but they're certainly moving in that direction of, of being more Westernized. And the major cities are each year I can see them becoming, becoming more Westernized for better or for worse. Westernized? I mean, are they really, well, is it because of the influence from Australia? Yeah, because when a big I think part Westernized, I think uh, democracy and uh, you know open open um, communication. Is it? Yeah, it's like the newspaper you're talking about. Is it uh, run by the government or is it an independent thing? Yeah, that's a good question. And i I have looked into this before, and now I can't I can't remember what I found. I th- I think it's I think it's at least relatively independent. I imagine the government has some influence. There are, there are two publications. Um, and now I can't remember. I think it might be that one of them is run by the government. One of them is not. I, huh, I don't, okay. I don't recall, but it doesn't seem like from what I could gather talking to people there and reading the newspapers myself, it doesn't actually seem like it's a uh, government controlled propaganda or anything. It oh. actually seems like pretty, pretty decent, honest news. So is, is it in English? It's in English. Okay. Yeah. So you can get, so you can get the newspaper in English and also, uh, pigeon English. So pidgin English is pidgin English is, is common in a lot of uh, island nations um, in the South Pacific and otherwise. So in the Caribbean too, there's pidgin English. Can you speak speaking English? But it's a different. Pigeon. No, I so I need to learn. Um, I, I don't because where I work is kind of it's pretty far off the grid. Yeah, and people tend to not speak pidgin English out there as much. That's starting to change, but pidgin English is more encountered in big cities. So everyone can speak Pigeon English, but mm. they tend to, if you go to, you know, whatever relatively isolated village or even, you know, a village that's close to a major town, they're speaking the, their native village language. Mm. And so I haven't really, there hasn't really been much incentive for me to learn Pigeon English. Okay. Because so I can the, use English instead. Yeah. Well, when I think of Pigeon English, I think of like a very simple language, isn't it? Like you, me, go boat. Or you mean yeah, on boat? Kind of. Yeah, it's it very, sounds very it sounds it sounds kind of silly, you know, when you when you hear it. Uh like I can often I can often understand what people are saying when they're speaking pigeon around me. Um, but I wouldn't be able to speak it. So yeah, because uh, a lot of a lot of the words are, you know, it's it's just it's broken English. So they kind of incorporate English into a more, I guess, simplified whatever um, whatever language they use. Yeah, well so so Papua New Guinea is the most linguistically diverse country in the world. So they really? they have over eight hundred languages. Get out! Over eight hundred languages in a in a pretty small country because that's you know that's only half of the island. How do they have eight hundred languages on an island? Yeah. So uh, this this is something I would like to have a more academic understanding of. I'm sure that there are great articles and books by anthropologists who have gone there because yeah. it's a 
a lot of the scientists who have gone to Papua New Guinea are anthropologists because it's such yeah. an interesting place culturally. So I, I know what I directly over experienced. Over 800 languages. I'm trying to wrap languages. my head around that. Yeah. I mean... And that's not including dialects. So there are some that the locals will tell you are different languages when you're there, but then they're, they're actually just different di- dialects. They sound similar. And I actually uh, checked this in one case because I thought, oh, maybe this is how they arrived at over 800 because these don't sound that different. But then I learned, no, these no, that actually is just that doesn't count as an, an additional language. So those are legitimate, very different languages. Wow. So, so that it's go f- not like Spanish and Mexican. No. Because no. they say it's Spanish, right. but it's not. I mean, you go to Spain, it's you know, or especially to they speak Portuguese too, is like a Spanish type language, but it's just a little different. But it's sure. So there's similar. that too. But so within those 800 languages, then you have several dialects. So you know, there must wow. be thousands of dialects. Wow. Some of these languages, from what I've from what I've gleaned from uh, different places, I think there are, you know, in some cases less than like 50 people speaking some of them. So unfortunately. You know, I imagine a lot of these languages will will die, you know, during my lifetime. Yeah. Because it is moving more toward development, of course, like every country does. Mm-hmm. And as they develop, of course, they are speaking more English and pidgin and speaking less of their local language because now people are starting to leave their villages at a young age to go to the cities where the economic opportunities are. Um it's it really is, though, relative to other places, still very, very village-oriented and uh, subsistence living-oriented. So I, I've read a stat at some point that less than 10% of the population in Papua New Guinea is formally employed. Uh, that, I think, was from, you know, like five years ago now. But still, I mean, I can sort of sense that as I'm moving around um, that country that still most people, they're born into a village, they have this chunk of land that belongs to them and that's that's how they live for their for their life they that doesn't they sound do so subsist- bad no it's it's actually kind of brilliant yeah uh, i mean why why work for the man you know right i mean do you need to work for the man or or i mean what 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 if if that is your life i you know i kind of think of what there's a, probably a lot of people in the united states that were like that sounds pretty good where you know i don't have to worry about my job at mcdonald's and or my other job working at uh, 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 sears or whatever in order to make the rent where you just own your land you own what's on it you grow your own food you kind of like you subsistence living what else no you, no rent yeah you know you, what else do you need you, well, you work for yourself really that's exactly right and i've tried to I've tried to convey that to friends there that, of course, I understand that, you know, we, we all sort of seem to in, in inherently want fancy things. You know, we want yeah. development. And I can yeah. feel that with my friends there. You know, I've gotten to know people, a lot of people very well there. And I, you know, continue to keep in touch with them as I can while I'm here. You know, they tend to be from places that don't have cell phone service. So it's rare that we're able to get each other on the phone. But you know, we can have really good conversations about this stuff. And it's it's interesting to hear their perspective because they, of course, want development, but then they also recognize um, that there are, there are some downsides to that and they're starting to see it already. And I've tried to convey that as much as I can without approaching it from a place of judgment or trying to tell them, you know, what they should aspire to be. Because I oh. get that they want development to happen. There are a lot of benefits for development to, ha- yeah, to happen, yeah. but... Of course, you get more isolated as there's more development, and they can see that happen, happening already. That the a very family oriented uh, c- 
culture is kind of moving away from that a little bit and people are starting to get a little bit more isolated and, you know, moving out of their villages and kind of leaving their family behind and then working in these kind of, you know, often kind of grimy cities and living in these kind of ramshackle apartments on the outskirts of town just to kind of make ends meet with your nine to five job. And a lot of people there will even say, you know, I, I, I prefer to just kind of stay here in the village where it's very nature based. I like nature. It's very peaceful. And I have my land and I have my family and you just need to be able to make enough money to be able to buy rice and clothes mostly. So for the most part, they grow everything else. They can make everything that they need for themselves, like their houses from bush materials. Uh, people are typically pretty crafty and independent and can just do whatever they need to survive there. Um, it's really just rice and clothes that at a bare minimum, people need to generate enough money to, to supply those things for their family. So and a cassowary or two. And a cassowary too. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. A little bit of a, you know, you got to have some, some complex protein once in a while. Well, that's, that's, that's one way that you can make money for rice and, and clothing is that you can, you know, hunt a cassowary and sell the meat to someone, right? Like that. Well, there's got to be a lot there too. I mean, the beak is massive. It's feathers, I'm sure are worth some money. And yeah, the feathers, the feathers, I'm not sure if they actually no? sell those. They do incorporate those into headdresses especially, um, and skirts for traditional dances. So they often in a lot of communities have cultural shows where they celebrate, you know, their, um, their traditional customs there. So they'll, you know, do their traditional dancing with a whole array of colorful feathers and cassowary feathers are a big part of that in the areas that still have a lot of cassowaries. No, I just had a thought. Do they, do they celebrate birthdays? Yeah. Yeah. Less so than weddings Weddings and funerals, I think, would be the biggest gatherings, and mm-hmm. that's typically where, if if you find like a young cassowary, or you let's say you hunt a um, with cassowaries, it's actually the father that takes care of the 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 young. So let's say you're you're hunting a cassowary, wow. and this wow, this father has has a young cassowary with it, and you kill the father for meat. You would take that young cassowary and raise it until probably one of your children gets married. Or until someone in your family dies, because you want that cassowary to be the, like the centerpiece of a big, a big meal with your with your community. Wow! So their cassowaries are used for that, and also pigs are a big part of that as well. So people will will raise a lot of pigs, and then you typically save them for very special occasions. So you're not yeah. just going to kill a pig because you just want some protein. Yeah. You have to wait for a, a, a big occasion. Oh, okay. But birthdays. Nothing. I haven't really experienced a big birthday celebration. Nobody makes there. a cake or... Not no, really. No, okay. Not, not well, really. Because, you know, uh, I'm trying to get a picture of my this culture in my head, and I just don't see a lot of calendars hanging on, you know, some hut. Do no. they live in huts? I mean, what, give me an example of Yeah, like, I mean, I I, I guess some people might house. describe them as, as huts. Uh, the, there's a lot of variation as you travel through the country, what the houses look like, because most houses are still just made of bush materials. And so what your house looks like is going to be dictated by what is in the, the bush in your area. So the bush would be the, the forest. You know, right. Like so it's going to be trees and, and uh, leaves and et cetera. Exactly. So they use often palm leaves, palm fronds for yeah. roofing and like yeah. the siding of a house. 
Um, they which cut is, down timber. Which is good. I mean, this is, yeah. it's, I mean, for, you know, millennia that has been used as all kinds of things and, and it, it works. You just got to replace it more often. It's more prone to fire, sure. but you know. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Well, what's, what's <laughs> remarkable about that though, now that you bring that up is that people like you make typically a separate kitchen and that's going to be made of bush materials and you're cooking over a fire. So people will cook over a fire within this structure of wood and dried palm fronds. But they're just people there are just so good with fire, you know. Like yeah. that's just it's so, it's so central to their lifestyle that you're not gonna you're not gonna let that fire get out of hand like someone here might, you know, in the U.S. Yeah, even someone who feels like they're really comfortable with making fire and managing a perfect cook fire, they're not on the same level as people who need that to to survive. Yeah, and make it every, every day. day. Yeah, yeah, uh, for every meal. So, yeah. So the the timber that they use for houses varies quite a bit, but they have some um, good hardwoods like mahogany hmm. uh, that they'll use for that. Um, There's some others that people have told me about that I'm, I'm forgetting the names of now, but wood that is actually sought after by, by like foreign companies. Um, there's some really good hardwood in New Guinea, and this is actually a big conservation concern in New Guinea because there are foreign companies that come over here to try to, you know, exploit, exploit those resources, of course. Um, so in some areas I think is probably getting a bit harder to, to really get that really high quality wood for your house because now people are leasing or selling their land to companies. Um, and so some people now are buying their wood from town. Um, some people, if they have enough money, they'll buy iron for the roof, which is obviously more watertight and you don't have to replace it. Uh, than palm fronds. But if you know what you're doing, those have uh, been in houses that are exclusively made of bush materials in New Guinea that were built 20, 30 years ago, and they haven't replaced anything. And you're in the house while it's just pouring rain, and there's nothing coming through. And I imagine it's got to be, uh, that's pretty warm there. It's like, how close is that to the very, equator? Very warm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah all, all the time, all year round. I, I would assume that during the rainy season, it gets a bit cooler because of, well, you know, a lot of rain, but um, just wet, hot, sticky, buggy is what my where I go. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the seasons are really just wet and dry. And actually, the dry season is the ambient temperature is cooler because you have that, you know, dense air moving out of there um, oh, during yeah. the dry season. I see. Um, so it, the nights and the nights will get considerably cooler during the dry season, actually be kind of cold at night. Not maybe by like northeast uh, Washington or I guess northwest Idaho where we are right yeah, now. Yeah, just uh, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Where it gets you know like uh, just last night it was in the you know twenty degrees Fahrenheit. So what is that uh, uh, minus two Celsius? Something like that. Yeah. So you know where where I work, which is in the lowlands, it, it never gets what I would describe as cold. To the local people, it can get cold. They'll talk about oh, it's so cold last night. Uh, Got down for to the me, 60s. obviously, yeah, <laughs> got down to the sixties. No, that's yeah. exactly right. That's about as low as it's going to get. As high sixties, usually at night where where I'm based, it's mid to high seventies. But the humidity drops down a lot at night, which is you know. So what do you do? You, so you just sleep. sweat all the time there. It sounds so like. I sweat all the time there, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and especially uh, at my western province field site where it's at least feels a little bit warmer. I'm not sure if it is. It's not really easy to get accurate weather <laughs> forecasting yeah. out that way. Uh, um, but it seems like it's hotter there. So every night there, I take 
a bucket shower because we don't have running water. So I, I take bucket showers are the best. I like bucket showers. Yeah. Okay. Does it, so, okay describe the bucket shower because I mean, there's different ways to go about. Sure. It. So so a bucket shower for us is we'll we'll collect water from a river usually. Um, or in the case of our Western province field site, kind of a marshy area, which is not ideal because then the water is a little bit dirtier. Yeah. If we're lucky, lot, it's been raining. things living in that right. mar- marshy water. For sure. Uh, not the most cleansing water necessarily, but um, if, if we're lucky, it's been raining enough that we can take rainwater. That's the best. Yeah. So then you just, you know, go to a place where you have some privacy and then just, you know, you have a big bucket filled with water and take a little scoop, um, sometimes just a bowl, you know, the same bowl we'd use for dinner and then just dump the water, um, one by one, you know, until you, until you're clean. So I, I take a bucket shower right before going to bed so that I fall asleep while I'm still kind of cooled down Oh yeah, and I good. don't even really dry off. Um, because it, it's, <laughs> I like sleeping cold and it's yeah. impossible to do that there unless you go to bed, you know, still kind of covered in cold, cold, cold water from the bucket shower. Yeah. So that's, that's my strategy. Then I fall asleep before I start to kind of warm back up and and dry off. Uh, and that, that usually works. And also, you know, what we do is it can be pretty physically exhausting chasing birds around in the, in the bush all day. So at the end of the day, you know, you can be pretty tired and that, that helps with, with getting a, a good night's sleep regardless of the conditions. Yeah. So man, and, uh, We've had to, you're also talking about like um like going so you're you're going there. I'm not sure where to start here. So let we okay. So you go there to you're looking for a specific bird, but why why did you go? Live? I want to go to Papua New Guinea. I mean, this is this sounds like the place I need to go. Where where do you start with that? Yeah, yeah, good question. So where where we started from is that so I'm part of this collaborative research group that studies fairy wrens which are fairy wrens. Fairy wrens. They're okay. these tiny um, kind of wren-like birds. They're not technically wrens, like the wrens we have in, in North America. They're a completely different family of birds, but they're really small and colorful, and they have kind of uh, – their tails are, are typically cocked up, which is why they're called fairy wrens, because wrens, you know, they usually have their tail cocked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fairy wrens have emerged at these, as these study organisms for ideal study organisms for sexual selection. So, you know, the, the study of, of traits that help, uh, gain mating opportunities because they're tiny and really colorful and they're really like highly social birds. They're flying around doing these crazy sexual displays, um, carrying flower petals. In a lot of cases, the males will, will carry flower petals around to this females is where we got it. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? It's yeah. all from watching the fairy wrens. Like, you know what? <laughs> That's I need to get idea. my gal some flowers, man. That'll work. <laughs> well, so it's so it's funny you characterize it that way because that's of course how we do it. But the fairy wrens are a little bit more, uh, I guess, maybe nefarious is is one of the right words. <laughs> so they studies of fairy wrens have shown that they really only carry flowers to neighbor females. So they might be pair bonded to one female and they're going to raise young with that one female on their territory. But then while that female is busy, you know, with the, with a young or just foraging or whatever, the males will pluck a a flower petal or a leaf that is really colorful, that looks like a flower petal and carry it over to a neighboring territory to show it off to uh, another female so that they can get these extra pair mating opportunities. Cause this is really how they enhance their, contribution to the gene pool is they're because they're highly social and 
you know, they, they have these colorful traits to show off. They don't want to just show those off to their, their mate. They kind of already have the, the mate sorted out, you know? Uh, so they're, they're, they're flying around to all these neighboring females. Uh, it's and, just a flower, honey. I didn't, right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just being nice. And for her, you know, she's, she's seeing flowers from a bunch of neighbor males too. So, um, it's not like she's, she's alone here on, on the territory necessarily. While he's off, you know, showing off to these neighbor females, there might be other males coming to, to her to show off. Gold digger. Uh, That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, they, he's got a NASA flower. <laughs> yeah. So they, so they are very charismatic birds and, and they live, they live in savannas typically. So in grasslands and they're, you know, they, they, obviously I'm talking about them flying around. So they fly like most birds, but they don't fly that well. Hmm. Um, they're mostly hopping around the grass when they're foraging. So they're, they're not very mobile and they're not really typically going up into the canopy so much. So it makes it easy to study them because then you can kind of follow them because they're not moving that fast usually. And then you can catch them. Um, really pretty easily. I mean, like you just go out and grab it or what do you, how do you catch it? No. So the way, the way we catch them, the way, uh, most, uh, most people who study birds would catch a bird as you set up what's called mist nets. So you have these nets that are, you know, practically invisible to the birds and they might see them and think, oh, that's a, a spider web or something. You know, it's, it's called a mist net, I think because you feel it when you hit it but you don't really see it that well. Hmm. Um, so anyway, so these, these nets we set up on, um, as we're walking through the bush and we, we see a fairy wren that we want to catch, we can set up a couple of nets or in some cases just one net and then either use a, a, a song from that species to draw them in. So sometimes they might respond aggressively to that song because they think, oh, someone's invading my territory. Do you do it or do you have like a, a device that does it? We have a, a device that does it. Um, I can actually, I can play the, yeah, do that. You this, got the, the, it's the on your song phone? On, my, on my phone. Yeah. Cause I do a lot of experiments where I, where I have to play the, uh, where I have to play the song to sort of assess their territorial response. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm getting off on, on a bit of a tangent here, That's all but, right. but, yeah. but the point, the point here scrolling through, I haven't had to find this, um, yeah, take your time bit. and find that. So, uh, so you got these, these, so I'm trying to picture. So this is like a grassy area is what I picture. Or is it also in like yeah, a lot of forested? It's grassy, um, tall so, grass. So I guess I'm I'm still talking about fairy wrens generally, but let, let me let me sort of zoom in on on my species here. So okay, fairy wrens broadly have have emerged over the last few decades as model organisms for sexual selection studies. Sexual selection studies are usually done in males. Um, because usually males are more colorful. Okay, so when you say in sexual selection, it's mean why do I select that particular other well, like male, female? Why do they choose each other? Yeah, yeah. Part part of it is the why. It's also the the how. Okay. Um. So, but it's so basically really selecting with, selecting someone to to mate with. Yeah, yeah. That's that, that's, that's kind it. of at, at okay. the at the centerpiece. So, right. a sexually selected trait would be something that would allow for increasing your mating opportunities. Just very whatever that and, might and that be. could be through a, a variety of different mechanisms. Okay, and so fairy wrens broadly have emerged as just perfect study organisms for that. Um, but these studies are usually in males because generally males are the ones who are more colorful. So the females are usually burdened with more of the the parental care responsibilities. So they're not really able to invest in coloration as much typically, um, like elaborate coloration. Um, 
So these really showy traits. So give because, me some examples. You keep talking about how colorful they are, but I'm still picking, picturing like a brown bird in my head. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, what, so kind of give me a, a description of what, what's... So what, with, with fairy wrens, usually, usually the females are kind of drab brown, okay. but the males are really vibrantly blue and red and in some cases purple. Um, like these, entirely And purple? really iridescent colors. No, really? it's usually a mix of... So the one that's purple is called the purple crown fairy wren. Um, and they just have purple crown fairy wren because they have a purple crown. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have, um, you know, some some blue plumage. So their their feathers are, are, are blue as well, on like on their wings. Um, but there, there are a variety of, of fairy wren species where the males are, are extremely colorful. Almost really all of them, the males are extremely colorful. But the reason why we're studying this, this species in New Guinea is what we have an example of in New Guinea is a species where the females have variation in coloration. So nor- normally it's the males that are varying in coloration. So that you might be as a young male, you might be really drab and brown. And then as you're able to invest more in your condition and, you know, get what you need to become colorful, you show off these colorful feathers and that helps you get more mating opportunities. Good. We can go down. All, like, I, I want to know, how do I get colorful? That's, you know, but. Well, uh, actually, so th- no, that's a great question because that's, that's what I work with specifically. Um, because I'm interested more in the, the how than the why. So uh-huh. again, with our study species, we have, we have females that, that can vary in coloration. So they can be drab brown. So in Western province where we study them, they're drab brown. If we go over to the other side of the country in Milne Bay province, which is the extreme Eastern province, they are colorful like the males. Um, so the females are colorful like the males. Like the males. Interesting. Yeah. So it's they don't look completely identical. They lack a little bit of the iridescence of the males, but they have this contrasting black and white plumage that's pretty pretty showy when you see them out in the grasslands that they inhabit. Huh. So they, it's this really contrasting plumage signal. Um, so I say signal because it's, you know, it's probably signaling something about their condition. Yeah. So as you're just walking through the grassland, these birds that are black and white, so they're all black and then they have these white shoulder patches called the white shouldered fairy wren as a result. So in some areas, the females ha- are black and white like the males and other places they're just brown. So we're trying to understand as a group as a collaborative group, we're trying to understand how they become colorful, how the females become colorful, and what that means. Because huh. we have a very incomplete understanding of these traits in females. We we understand them actually pretty well in males. There's still a lot of questions to tackle there, of course. Are the males um, the same with the, like attracting the males? Those, yeah, the, the males are the same. Really? And and wherever you go, the males look the same. They're always just they have this contrasting black and white coloration. It's the females who vary. So th- wow. there are a lot of cases wow. ar- around the world where female female animals, especially female birds, are colorful. It's not just this species. But what's rare about this species is that within one species, we have this gradient of coloration. So it allows us to sort of, you know, answer these questions about, okay, where does this, where do these traits come from and, and, and what do they mean? Um, so... Yeah, so you've got these... Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so... so uh, it, so there, you've got the guys trying to look for the girls, and uh, they uh, and and the girls really vary, but the guys pretty much the same. The guys are pretty much pretty much the same. 
wherever you go, but the, but the fem- the females are varying. And so what what I'm doing specifically is so they, so since they all look the same, they got to go pick a flower, like you know. Yeah, that's I mean that's part of it. Yeah. And then they'll puff up their shoulder patches. They do these crazy display flights the, where they'll the puff women, up the, 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 the males. The males have we this. haven't actually seen the females do it. Oh, okay, even the ones who are who are colorful like the males, but the males will puff up their their white shoulder patches. And they'll do this bobbing flight where they're just kind of undulating very slowly um, away from the perch the female's on. So they'll go perch by the female, and they might present her with a feather. Or they might even feed her. They might bring her like a, a small insect to feed her. And then they'll do this undulating flight away to kind of show off, um, you know, how, how colorful they are. And also, oh, wow. they make themselves look a lot bigger hmm. as well. Um, and... What what I was initially loading up here a long time ago when we were first starting yeah, right. to talk about this is what they sound like. What they sound like. So make sure let's see if the levels are okay in this. But yeah. here's just put the, the put the put the and what is that? So that's that's a duet. So that's a male and female white shouldered fairy wren singing together. Okay, so this so would be a territorial. So now I'll play another one. No, play the same one again. I, I like that that there's a, a a bug in the back. A bug in the yeah. The fly is buzzing yeah. buzzing the the microphone there. It's a common awesome. common struggle. So so you would tropics. so that is is that something you would play to to attract something to or? attract? Yeah. So what that does is that. Well, did you have like a male and female one too, or? Yeah. Not? So th- those are male and female singing together. Okay. It sounds like just one song because they're so perfectly synchronized, but that's a male and a female who are kind of advertising their pair bond and and marking their territory with this this really well matched song. So they're saying wow. like we're we're together and this is our our territory. Keep typically. out. Yeah. Keep out. So yeah. if if we play that, so if I'm playing that through a speaker on a white shoulder fair and territory, that will bring in the territory holders for that area. Um because they'll hear that and they'll think, oh, there's a We've we've got some we've got some invaders. We've got some oh. some uh some conspecifics, some other white shoulder fair ends who are trying to take our, our area. So they'll come in in many cases really aggressively and kind of check out where this is coming from. So they'll drop down. I mean, I've seen them use this the speaker is kind of buried in the grass. I've seen them so, drop so down in the grass. Like a Bluetooth speaker. A Bluetooth here? speaker. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um so what what we use that for then is we'll use it both to lure them in to catch them if we, if we if we want to catch them. Yeah. So it's important that we catch these birds for a variety of reasons. One is that we're doing a lot of behavioral studies, and so if you want to do behavioral studies in birds, we obviously can't tell apart the different individuals very well just by looking mm-hmm. at them. Mm-hmm. They seem to be able to do that. How they do that, we don't really have a complete understanding of. But for us, of course, we need to have something that, that sets them apart from each individual. So we put a series of color bands on their legs, which is pretty conventional with, with bird research. In Australia and, and, and England, they say ringing. We, we call it banding in the U.S. Um, so we band or ring them with these colored bands on their legs. So these are bands that don't interfere with their lifestyle at all. They just fit around the legs. They're not tight. They just kind of slide around. Um, while they're flying around and hopping in the grass, it's a bracelet, a bracelet, yeah, no, that's that's perfect. So it's basically a bracelet, and then so there'll be three of those colors, and each individual 
Fairy Wren will have a unique set of those three colors. And then we'll put a unique uh, metal band on their leg as well that fits like a bracelet. So that one has a unique number on it. And we have to submit information on these birds to the Australian government because we get these metal bands from them. So if we're doing this work in the U.S., then we would get bands from the, the U.S. government and they would track that. So what that would mean is that if, if another researcher comes to these areas and they catch this bird and they look up that metal band, they can go to a database that tells them these people caught this bird in this location and give them whatever information um, we collected from that individual. So this allows us, as we're just walking through the field, we can use our binoculars to just tell apart each individual. So we can say, okay, that bird with blue, yellow, green, that's the the female on this territory. Her mate is like red, blue, orange. Um, and then their their children, their young, are, you know, these these colors. And we can kind of track them over time and see how these relationships are changing, who they're associating with. Um Things like that. So that way we we can know if someone is off their territory. Maybe a male is flying off of his territory to go show off to a neighbor female. And we could confirm that by looking up his his color combination because we know where he belongs. Uh, we know where his territory is. Um, so that's that's the one of the main things we do when we catch them. We take a blood sample. Um, and that blood sample, we, we spin down in a centrifuge so that we can... Uh, assess genetic information from the red blood cells and then we can assess hormonal information from the plasma so just think about that for a second now i mean just i'm just thinking of uh like you're in a very um uh very uh dead uh, what's the term i'm looking but someplace that there's not a lot of industry going on it's not uh, not a lot of high-tech information but you're looking up dna i just think about that just like you know yeah how long ago was that? In the fifties, they discovered DNA. Was it in the fifties, sixties? Am I right? No, something oh, like that. But I, I, okay, I remember it, the yeah, Watson and Crick. It was yeah. So that's that's been old. Recent. It hasn't been that long ago, really. And look what we're doing now is that you're going to this remote area and finding DNA on these specific birds, and and then getting what do you get out of that? Yeah. So well, so first I should say for for anyone who's listening who maybe has. I don't know, medical background or studies other animals that so in humans and in uh, mammals the red blood cells are not nucleated so they don't have dna right. inside them in birds they are nucleated oh i couldn't tell you why i've never actually read up on it's this just, it's just the, it's um, just the way it is it's just the way it is okay um so that's very fortunate for us so i actually <laughs> don't work with the with the genetic information and and um I, I should back up again and say that when I talk about we for this research, I'm collaborating with people at Tulane University. So I have a senior collaborator there. So he's a professor. That's at right. You're, that's right. You're a student. You're not I'm a student. You're, you're, I mean, you yeah. talk about this, but you're, you're doing this research, but you you uh, are the student of this. Of uh, and you're you're going out getting research to get your dissertation. Is that correct? To get my dissertation. That's yeah, right. Right. So so what I what I should say, and I, I want to mention these people anyway, um, yeah. is that, you know, I'm Good collaborating with, yeah, shout out, shout out to Jordan Krubian, who, uh, oversees the, the Ferry Wren project in New Guinea. He's, he's based at Tulane university. So he's a, a tenured professor. And where's there. Tulane? Tulane yeah. is in New Orleans. New Orleans. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. so he oversees the, the project at large, and then he's had two graduate students who's work, who have worked on this project with me. 
Um, one Eric Enbody, the other is, is John Jones. Um, Eric has already finished his PhD, but we, we're continuing to work together in some capacity on some some publications and hope to continue working together in the future. Same with John. He and I are still working on things together, and he he needs to he's still finishing up his dissertation like I am. Um, he's currently in Australia doing research with some other fairy wren species, actually. Um, and then my advisor is at Washington State University, and I sort of I kind of uh, dragged him to New Guinea in a way. He hasn't physically been there, but he was planning for me to go to Australia and study a a, a better studied species there that's easier to work with because you're in Australia. You have better infrastructure for research. This um, is Dr. Schwabel. Dr. Schwabel, Dr. Hubert Schwabel. Um, so he's been working with the species as part of this collaborative network of researchers in Australia for, for quite a number of years. Um, and that's kind of what he had envisioned for me. But I was pretty insistent that I wanted to work with the species in New Guinea. And I knew that you know one of the professors in this collaborative network was starting a project in New Guinea. And I just wanted to have a new adventure because that's kind of how I see science and, and biology for me is it's, it's a, it's an opportunity to go experience a, a new culture and travel to these faraway places and, and learn something of course about biology, but in the process of doing that, you know, having these really unique adventurous experiences and ideally, you know, giving back to some communities that are not typically visited by people like us, you know, you can have, I think a much bigger impact in a place like New Guinea than you can in Australia, where you're probably just going to be in the trenches of doing research. You're going to have less of these uh, conservation implications associated with your research. Um, anyway, this this all started from, now I can't remember what the initial question was. We were talking about trying to capture. Oh, the red blood cells. Yeah. Right. right. So I don't work directly with the genetic data, but what what we can do with that is look for some genetic markers underlying these differences between the, the, the females. Mm -hmm. So maybe they have, uh, you know, these divergent genes that underlie the differences that these divergent traits that we're observing in coloration. Mm -hmm. I can't speak to that too much because I don't work with that data directly. Um, what I work with comes from the plasma because I'm studying specifically how testosterone influences these traits like ornamentation, like elaborate coloration that mm -hmm. we're interested in. So, and that comes, that comes from the plasma. The hormones are, are in the plasma. So what I have been doing is, is really trying to understand that if females who are more colorful have higher testosterone, and this would be the reason why we suspect this might be the case is because in closely related species where there's variation in male coloration, when they go from being dull brown to being this really elaborate, contrasting, colorful plumage, they do this in part by increasing their testosterone circulation. And so that's going to affect gene expression throughout their body, including in the feather tracks. Huh. And that, that helps them then gain this, this elaborate coloration. It also does things like promote territorial aggression in a lot of species. So that's another thing we work with is whether or not um, these females who are more colorful are, are, are more aggressive. So maybe they need to defend their resources more and maybe but, testosterone is one way that they do that as yeah, well. Yeah. Well, testosterone in general is a, you know, 
It makes you more aggressive. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's it's well characterized in humans and and in most most vertebrate species. Yeah. Um, so, but but the reason why this is this is interesting to us is that we we might have a pretty good understanding of how this works in males again, but in, in females we don't know if they're using similar mechanisms to males. So if the males and species are using testosterone, are females using testosterone? We don't really know. Huh. And and females, you know. They're not going to be circulating as much testosterone as males because testosterone predominantly comes from testes, and females don't have testes. Of course, biological females do not have testes, so they, but, that but, testosterone is coming from somewhere else. But testes do come from uh, the when, well, at least in humans. Okay, I can't I can't say for birds, but I mean in humans, males come from the the female. The testes drop at some point, right? So I mean it 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 does come from that at some point. Maybe we're going maybe because I know I'm going someplace I don't know a lot about, <laughs> but I know that happens at some point when the 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 child is in gestation and. Um, uh, before it's it's born, you know, it becomes male or female. The the testes drop out of the what is basically a female form. Yeah, I think I think the the convention there is that in in mammals like humans, there's this gene on the Y chromosome called the SRY gene, yeah. and that dictates the generation of testicular tissue, and then that testic- testicular tissue starts, you know, secreting a bunch of testosterone. And then that's going to cause these what are called organiza- organizational effects um, of testosterone, where they have these permanent effects from this developmental circulation of testosterone that just promote all of these traits that are more male typical. So that's and, what you're trying to see if maybe that happens in the female birds at some point. Yeah, yeah, that's if right. It's, if it's in 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 uh, before it's actually. Uh, born, I don't know what you like before it comes out of the egg, or if it's uh, happens during its life, right? Well, so that's that's uh, that's great that you went there because that's actually that's something that I'm considering doing in the future. I would like to keep working with this species, but logistically, that's kind of challenging to sample hormones from eggs without destroying the eggs. There are ways to do that. Yeah. I've never done it, um, but it of course requires that you're finding nests, which we've had a difficulty doing in, in New Guinea because the birds are kind of nesting seems like at a low level year round and they just don't seem to want to nest when we're there. So I guess we really just, uh, I guess we just turn them <laughs> off you know, in some way. Uh, uh, Jordan's here. <laughs> I guess we're not going to nest. So we've been waiting for, you know, getting a lot of breeding specific information and that would require us to do that kind of work, but we haven't quite gotten there yet, but I think, you know, there are ways to do that in the future. What I'm working with specifically there are a lot of different things I'm working with, but yeah. <laughs> but the main the 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 initial experiment that I did was I was giving testosterone to adult females, and I was giving them giving it oh, specifically like, to like what, how are you giving it to them? Yeah, so I make these little beeswax and peanut oil implants that have like crystalline testosterone dissolved in them, hmm. and then we insert that subcutaneously. It's a pretty simple procedure. How big is it? Um, it's about the size of a small grain of rice like an uncooked grain of rice oh, okay okay yeah and yeah the really so really small but these birds are really small of course so we need to make sure those implants are especially small and what that does is it just it steadily releases the testosterone um over the course of about three to four weeks it looks like um but let me back up again because where <laughs> for us to do that kind of experimental work we first have to establish 
a correlation to look for causation by doing this testosterone work. So first wow, what we yeah. found is that, that that can't be easy just to find that, but yeah. Go right. On, go so on. so over, 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 you know, some years of study, this is work in conjunction with, um, my, my collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, what we found is that the females who are more colorful are both more aggressive. So they're, they defend their territories more aggressively. Huh. Uh-huh. And they also circulate higher testosterone levels. And so what that gives us is kind of a framework to, to base these experiments off of that. We know that there's a correlation between being more colorful and having higher testosterone and being more aggressive relative to those females that are less colorful. So it kind of points to maybe testosterone acting in females a lot like it does in males. But the only way for us to, you know, of course, determine this, if there's actually causality between testosterone and these traits, is to supplement that testosterone to those females that are less colorful. Hmm. So what I did is I um, designed this experiment with with the help of my my collaborators to put these testosterone implants in the unornamented females and determine if they become more colorful and if they become more aggressive. And so the the main result, I'm not going to get in the weeds here, um, because you know this is there's a lot of weeds. There are a lot of weeds. There are a lot of weeds, <laughs> as there always are with well, science. Just, yeah, yeah. I was going to say um, with science specifically, like you can go so many directions. Exactly. Like, there, is there that a weed? Of... Uh, it's a weed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's there's there is a lot to this, but the, the but the main story is that once those unornamented females, those less colorful females, are given testosterone in adulthood, so we're not giving this to young young individuals. Um, so in adulthood, they can... Okay, just a, real quick. So about how long do they live? Yeah. You say adulthood. Good, yeah, good question. So we don't really know. We're the first ones to study this species. I see, okay. Um, and it's Wait, it appears the, to be the, the oldest white-shouldered fairy wren. So it's um, the white-shouldered fairy wren that you're specifically yeah, studying that nobody else has studied. Only on the island of New Guinea, yeah. So you have to go to New Guinea to... Did you to name it? I mean, how did you know it was... No, in- no. I mean, people, people have... Uh, you know, there are collections of this bird going back, you know, okay, uh, considerable. But nobody's time. actually studied this bird. for this go, oh, like uh, ornithologists go, oh, there's a there's a, a wren and it's a white-shouldered fairy wren. Somebody else years ago discovered it. Exactly. You're now studying it specifically for these traits. So there, okay. so there are some publications that, you know, include a little bit of information on white-shouldered fairy wrens from, say, like museum specimens and that kind of stuff. But we're the first to really dig into this one species and just... All right, we're going to focus on. So on you this don't bird. know how long it is, but it is an but adult. They they can live. So I think the oldest birds we have in our database um, are eight years old. Okay. Um, and from working with a a sister species to this to this one, it seems like eight is about the the maximum. Hmm. Um, so, but I would say typically they probably live about more like five, four or five years is probably more typical. Damn. Um, but so, uh, yeah, so, so and... the, these adults, so we're giving these adult females testosterone. And so after we give them testosterone, again, we want to see if they become more colorful, they, if they start to look like those ornamented females. That's going to take time because they have to replace their feathers. So what we did is we gave them testosterone. Before they started replacing their feathers, we assessed the effects of having that elevated testosterone on their aggressive behavior. So maybe... Maybe all that matters for becoming more aggressive is that you have higher testosterone. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're more colorful. Hmm. Or it could be it's, it has everything to do with being more colorful, and testosterone just kind of piggybacks off of that. Oh. There is some research that shows that once, if you just like color in a bird to become more 
um, colorful that they can start increasing their testosterone circulation. So they somehow because uh, yeah, because uh, that gets me to thinking that because if you are more colorful and you're more attractive, not just to yourself, but wouldn't you also be more attracted to predators? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's uh, at the cornerstone so, of a lot of so this research in, in so males. So there's the there's yeah. the di- dichotomy, I guess, is that okay? Do you get more testosterone because and because you have colorful plumage, or do you get colorful plumage, um, and then you get more testosterone because there are things coming after you, man? Yeah. Well, sure. It, it could be that, or it could be you know that you don't know y- you are then having more aggressive interactions with individuals because maybe it's serving as a status signal. Oh, and so yeah. now now other individuals are seeing you as, oh, you're trying to signal that you're competitive. Yeah. Um, Back off. So yeah. th- that mechanism isn't very well understood. But in okay. the context of this study, what, what I wanted to know is, is it, does testosterone cause females to become more colorful? Does testosterone independently becoming more colorful cause them to become more aggressive? Or is it that once they become more colorful, you know, they, they become more aggressive because of that. And perhaps it's testosterone that's mediating that as well. So with this experiment, what we found is that they do, they do become more colorful once you give them testosterone. So they develop these white shoulder patches, which we've never before seen in these unornamented females. So at this study site where we're studying these unornamented females, we've never observed any of these white shoulder patches. So if you give a female testosterone, she will replace her feathers, her shoulder patch feathers that are that are brown in this population with white feathers. So they molt in part of this, you know, ornamental signal. Um, and then there are some slightly darker feathers, but they're not totally black. So they're not able to, it seems like, to produce these black feathers. But anyway, they do they do become more colorful. And what we found is that once they become more colorful, then they increase some of the components of their aggressive territorial response to an intruder. They don't do it before that signal is developed when testosterone is elevated. They do it later after they would have like gone through all that testosterone in the implant. And then they're wearing this, you know, more colorful um, plumage, Hmm. these more colorful feathers. Hmm. So it seems like testosterone is at least partly responsible for producing these different female, um, morphs and that once, once you come up with this different morph, once you become more colorful, then that's influencing, you know, how aggressive you are when a bird invades your territory. Um, so that's, does that also like increase their chances of finding a mate? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Don't know that yet or that we don't know that yet. That, that is is another part of the study or is that a difference? Not yet, but that's actually, that, that's something that I think a lot of us have considered. I, I've certainly, I've certainly pondered that quite a bit. You know, trying to come up with an experiment to to test that directly. Um, it's difficult to do outside of captive studies, and these birds are really difficult oh, to have yeah. in captivity. Yeah. Usually, if you're doing, you do like a mate choice study for something like that, and so you'd put them in some sort of cage where they're exposed to these different types of females. So you put a male in a cage and expose them to these different types of females, and then assess their preference for one or the other. That requires being able to hold them in captivity successfully. And a collaborator tried that, and it, it's challenging because you have to catch a bunch of insects because they're insectivores to feed them. Um, and they don't really, it seems like they don't really do well in cages. They start to show signs of being really stressed out. And of course, we don't want to harm these birds. Um, we're trying to study them 
and you know, without being too invasive and, and, you know, damaging, mm-hmm. damaging them in any way. Um, so that, that's, that's one of the, the, the focal points. And that's, that's the one that I've done. That experiment is, is the only one that I've, I've gone through and done really rigorous analyses of so far. Um, and so that, that paper I'm hoping to, to submit to a journal within the next month before, before uh, Christmas rolls around, I guess by the time people are listening to this, it's going to be yeah, probably relatively close to Christmas. Because yeah, so this is what uh, what is today the twenty uh, third, November twenty third, November twenty third is when we're recording this. So yeah, so hopefully those of you who are listening to this, I've I've already submitted that <laughs> paper. We'll see. That's cool. It's where my... do you so where do you submit? What's uh, what uh, do you submit to a bunch of them, and hopefully one of them picks it up, or do you just submit it to one, then yeah. get rejected, submit it to the next one, get rejected, submit it to one until they accept it? So you You're like getting a book deal. The, the the kind of have a, a hierarchy in mind. So you have, um, you might have a target journal in mind that is maybe the best case scenario. So like the highest impact. So each journal comes with an impact factor that r- relates to how many people are reading that journal and citing yeah. studies from that from that journal. So you want to kind of aim for the highest realistic journal every people have sure. different approaches yeah um sure if i'm writing a book they, i want little brown man give me a little brown ex- exactly right yeah. so um, what the what the what is the one you want well so for this study i, I think i think probably i'll uh, i'll seek out behavioral ecology which is where we publish the initial correlations between these traits because you know this experiment directly piggybacks off of that, so I think they'd be interested in that. Oh, yeah, it's a it's a a, a pretty good journal. Um, they're certainly and not like that, but they could link back to it to their own link, journal, and exactly. Then, then people would read more of their stuff, right? So and, that and, makes and sense. for me, anyway, I you know, as as a graduate student, what's important for me is to really just get things published. Um, and so I'm just interested in really picking like a realistic target journal, and and not spending. You lose a lot of time as you continually aim high and you know say you get rejected from that first journal then you have to reformat it for another journal maybe you get rejected from that one um behavioral ecology is a very good journal um i could potentially aim a little bit higher with this study but we have some limitations anyway you know we have a relatively low sample size it's just logistically difficult to do really intense experiments like this in a place like new guinea because you know, you're working on people's land, you're coordinating arrangements with all these different landowners. And so you might have a very small area that you can work on. You know, there's no, uh, there's a lot of just services that you just don't have there that make it kind of difficult to do this intensive research. So again, coming back to how we get these testosterone levels, we have to spin the blood in centrifuges. So what that means is we need to bring several centrifuges with us. Ideally, we have at least two with us at all times because they relatively often break. So we have to plug them into generators. Um, and we usually have like two surge protectors that we're going through because the generator might, you know, Oh yeah. Cause it's just the RPMs a, are going to change. Yeah. Generators are running off gasoline or something, I assume. Exactly. Or, or diesel. Diesel. Yeah. There's uh, you talk about fluctuation in power. Those yeah, things really fluctuate. Quite a lot of fluctuation. And so we have blown out a lot of the, the AC adapters for our centrifuges and other equipment. And so you need to make sure you have a yeah. lot of AC adapters on hand because you probably aren't going to be able to replace them. Yeah. Um, and have a couple of these different couple of these machines with you. Um, and this, uh, yeah, with with centrifuging, you know, when you mentioned just how you know quickly science has kind of moved to where this research is just really conventional to work with, yeah, like blood samples. Yeah. You can kind of really feel that in New Guinea where the first time we arrive at a, at a village 
And we have that first day where we go out and catch birds. We have all these blood samples to spin in our centrifuge. Everyone who's in that area will come around and just watch the centrifuge. Like what, what is this thing doing? Yeah. It makes, it makes some noise, you know, as it's spinning around. Yeah. And it separates it and it separates it. So we'll show them the blood. It is fascinating. You've got to admit. It's really fascinating. So yeah, we, we show them the blood before we spin it and then we show them after and it just, you can watch just minds, minds being blown, which is, which is really fun. It kind of reminds you of, you know, like what it was like when you, for me, when I first started doing some of this work where first time you do a lot of stuff, the first time you handle a bird, it's like, whoa. I am yeah. holding this live wild bird right now. Um, now and it's all not stuff pecking me to death. Nature. Yeah. Well, some sometimes they they try. Yeah. When it's a fairy wren, you know they're like around six to eight grams typically. Um, that's six to tiny eight grams. Grams. So if I picture that's like the size of my palm, really. That's a tiny bird, isn't it? It's smaller. Smaller. Than like okay, like small. It's like hummingbird like, size. Then. Yeah, like a little bit bigger than the. The typical hummingbirds around here, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they are tiny. They're oh, tiny okay. Birds. When you say small bird, I'm thinking, okay, uh, like, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> what's a small bird? Uh, a little, uh, I don't know, like a finches were around here or something. But yeah, they'd it's be even bigger smaller. than all the finches around here for sure. Um, so these are these are tiny birds, and that's you know that's why you kind of have to, you know, you de- there's a lot of training that goes into just making sure that you handle a bird like that safely because. Mm-hmm. They have these tiny legs that, you know, are about the width of a, actually, honestly, less, uh, the diameter of their legs would be considerably less than a, than a toothpick than, you know, the center of a toothpick. Wow. I mean, so you got to be really careful. Then you, you can snap a, the, yeah, not, not only that, but it, it's a bird. So aren't their bones hollow? Their bones are hollow. Yeah, that's right. So that makes it even, yeah. even easier to snap. Yeah. yeah you got to be real careful with that. So we, we fortunately haven't had really any issues with that. Um, sometimes we catch birds that have broken their legs just out in nature while mm-hmm. they're moving around. Um, so probably they interacted with a predator or, or, or something and, you know, got away, but they, you know, they're showing the, <laughs> the impact of that interaction. Um, but you know, we are working mostly with, with local people because it's important for a number of reasons to work with local people there. One is again, that we're almost all the land in New Guinea is privately owned. It's customary land. And so you have to make sure that you are communicating well with the landowners in these areas that this is what we're here to do. This is what we're not here to do. Like we're not here to extract resources like other white people you might have met um, who have come to your land before. We're just studying this one bird. We're not taking anything except for some blood samples um, and some feathers. You know, we're releasing these birds back in the wild. Um, So there's a lot that goes into those arrangements, but at the centerpiece of them is that we are employing local people in each of these communities. So we we spend a lot of time training them in research methods, making sure that they are comfortable and uh, you know responsibly extracting these tiny birds from our mist nets, and then you know they're able to hold them without anything bad happening. Same as if, of course, you know when we bring people from the U.S., like students from the U.S., to help. I tend to take one one person from, from the U S with me to kind of have as my like right hand man for the duration of my time as I travel around the country. But then in each of those communities, then I have, you know, a a group of local people who are coming out with me each day. They know the land really well. Um, they can see that we're not doing anything, um, negative on their land. Um, and then they're also able to make, make some money and learn some skills that will hopefully help them in the future. So if, if other researchers come to that area or, 
if ecotourists come to that area, which is starting to happen more, um, more frequently now, fortunately, then they can be the ones who, who serve as, as guides for people because they're going to learn some things about birds from us. They might know all the birds on their land, but we can kind of, you know, we learn a lot from them, of course, but we can also sort of tell them some things about the birds they might not know. So it's a great opportunity to have this like really perfect exchange of information where both sides benefit. You know, we get really reliable assistants who are just are inherently good at doing the things that, you know, we need help with Mm -hmm. and they get some, some experience learning, learning things from us as well. That's cool. So not only are you learning something, uh, people that uh, are there are learning something and they can pass that on. I mean, like you're talking about, uh, you know, tell them why that male is differently colored than the other male or, yeah. you know, look at, look at how all the females are the same. Well, he passed it on to an eco-tourist like, oh, you know what I learned when I was in New Guinea? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. You know? And the people get a kick out of the, the flower stuff in particular. So that it's called petal carrying when you've, when a bird is carrying a flower petal. Yeah to a female. I mean, they'd really run with that. And, you know, they will tell, we, we will go to, to local schools and local community assemblies and stuff and, and share what we're doing in that area, you know, and make sure that they are aware of who we are and make sure that they know that we're always happy if they want to come up and ask us questions. And, you know, like, cause they're going to wonder like, why, why are these white people coming here to just chase this tiny bird around? Um, so that, that information really does spread through the community and people especially get a kick out of the, the pedal carrying and some of the crazy things that males do just to try to, you know, mate, mate with a female. <laughs> it was uh, ever thus, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Me, Grog, you woman. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are like some direct, uh, analogs, I think to, to human behavior with some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's, it makes it a really, I think, fulfilling experience because it's not just research that we're doing there we're constantly interacting with everyone in the community and we we have we really become part of people's families in the communities that we that we live in and yeah i really miss those people when i'm away because it really does feel like they're um it's, it's like a second family for me how important is it to uh be associated with a certain, was it a tribe? What do you call, is it, are they tribes within there? Like you have 850 languages. Is it each tribe? Yeah. So I wish, How are they I wish I could, I could confirm that. I wish I'd read about that in particular, but I, I think, I think it is actually based on is it tribal tribe, I think is the right level for languages. So I think each tribe would have a language. And then within that tribe, you have different clans. So what I'm used to, the, the level of Whoa, sort of... So tribes and clans, to me, they, they sound pretty much the same. They sound the same, but it's kind of different levels of organization. So okay. tribe would be uh, a, a, maybe, let's say, a group of uh, like 10,000 people, maybe. Um, this is just a hypothetical. But then within that tribe, you might have 10 different clans. So like when we show up to... So clans more familiar, famil- familial... familial. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. okay. Um, and then within each of those clans, you would have set families, you know, but they're, um, yeah, so that would be kind of the organization of that. So what I'm used to kind of is on the, on the clan level. So if we, when we arrive to a village that we haven't worked in before, we have to identify the, the clans that own the land that we want to work on. So the land we want to work on is wow, the that's, Savannah, that's... the grassland, because that's where our wow. birds are. Yeah. So we have to figure out, we have to walk around with people in that community and say, okay, th- these are the areas that we want to work in. 
who who owns these areas. And it's tricky because if you only go out with maybe your point of contact is just in one clan, they might tell you, oh, it's just it's just my clan because they know that we're going to be coming with some sort of benefit. People people tend to be like, you know, pretty honest. And like I said before, really good people there. But there are, you know, of course, as would happen here, you have you know, some individuals who want to kind of uh, capitalize on all the benefits themselves and for their for their family and for their clan. So, so they'll we, say it's theirs and it's not. They'll say it's theirs and maybe only part of it is theirs. Yeah. So we have to really take a long time to identify the the people in that community who will give us a very honest impression of who owns those areas. So usually there's a, a counselor who oversees the village, um, and, and they're the ones who should be able to tell you because they're looking out for all the people in their village, hopefully. Um, they're the ones who can tell you, like, okay, that area they want to work on, it's these three clans. Here are the people you should talk to. These are the heads of each of these clans. So at each level of organization, tribe, clan, family, there is someone who is either formally or informally kind of the the leader of that group. So then we would meet with the leaders of those groups and make sure that is we... Is it always a male? Great. Yeah, that's a great question for New Guinea in particular because where we work in Western province, it's males. And because the the, the land is inherited, inherited uh, patrilineally, Patrilineally. Wow, that's really difficult. Is that patrilineally? Is that really a word? Patrilineally? Patrilineally. Wow. Yeah. Wow, look at you and your big brain. Uh, <laughs> what are you, a PhD student? But, but not, but not, I have the brain to come up with the word, but not the uh, the tongue, I guess, to produce it. Uh, and then and then uh matrilineally uh applies to uh the Milne Bay province, where we work with the ornamented females, the more colorful females. So land is inherited through females. So there you might have some community and clan leaders who are females more often. Um, but even still, you know, men tend to take those positions, even though they're not really the rightful uh, owners of the land. Huh. Um, but it is more common over there that you would interact with a female in that environment than yeah. in Western province where it is. It's it's all males. Um, so you've got to go through all these different clans and all these different languages. So how long, let's say you, you identify, I want to go over here to do study this bird. Yeah. How long does it take to get, just to get the okay to go there? Yeah. I, it doesn't take that long. I mean, we... Oh, just like a matter of hours or... Yeah, oftentimes. Oh, okay. But okay. it might take a matter of hours to get the initial agreement down, but then you, you're going to face issues. So, so you might, you might come to an agreement and then you learn, oh shoot, we left out, uh, like Bradley and Bradley is upset with us now. Um, so this, this has been a historic issue for our project and in the initial communities that we started to work with communities that I didn't make the initial, I wasn't part of the initial arrangements. My collaborators were who got there before me. Um, I have since done this in some, some of the new communities that we've started, but in some of the initial areas that we started to work in, what I've seen is over the years, some of these relationships have dissolved if we don't, you know, just constantly meet with these people and, and sort of reaffirm, reaffirm the arrangements and reaffirm who we are and what we're there to do and what we're not there to do, because rumors will start to spread that we are, you know, uh, I, I don't even know exactly specifically what they hear about us, but they, they will, 
there'll be rumors that are that's that are spread that are negative that then make it to where we have to meet with these landowners again and say, hey, look, like we're still here with limited money from the government and we're we're still able to pay this amount of people to work on our project. Um, and we're still not taking anything from your land except for these like blood samples from these birds that we're not actually taking the birds. Um, so it requires just a lot of a, 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 a constant, constant meeting with um, landowners to really do it right. But what, what I will say is that we are extremely fortunate to work with um, some individuals in particular in New Guinea. So when we first, when our project first went there, there's one woman in particular we linked up with in Milne Bay province named, named Serena, and she's kind of become the, the, the mom for our project. So she's this matriarch in this area as she travels to all these distant villages from hers, people know who she is and they call her mommy or mother mm. because she has this reputation um, for just speaking very eloquently about issues and kind of, you know, identify, identifying areas where she can kind of unify people when there are, when there are issues that come up in these communities. Um, so we got in with her pretty early and she has done a lot of these arrangements for us. So, if I'm back in the U.S., I might be, you know, talking with her on the phone and asking her to meet with particular people as she's telling me that, okay, these individuals now are starting to get this idea that we're doing something that's negative or they're not happy with how little benefit they're getting from the project. They want more money. And then, you know, we'll communicate as a group and then ask her to go meet with these people. And she has made everything that we've done in that province possible because um, she's very well connected, very well respected. She has our best interests in mind, but also the the best interests of the the landowners there, and so that that's really the key to doing work in a place like New Guinea is you have to find people like Serena if you're lucky that they're there, um, and just really you know lean on them to to help you with all these arrangements because it's it's hard it's hard for us because it's a culture that you know I might spend up to five months there, but at a time, but I, I, I'm not going to, of course, fully understand what it means to be a, a, a landowner there. And I, I don't fully understand some of the, the nature of the, the culture mm-hmm. behind, um, be, behind land ownership there and some of the fears that they have about people like us. So she, she helps us with all of that. That's cool. So you gotta, yeah, it's always about, you know, I say it often. It's not, uh, it's not what you know. It's not always what you know. It's who, you know, uh, more often than not, I mean, for anything. It seems like, you know, yes. you want a job, yeah, who do I know? You know, I, hey, I know so-and-so or, you know, yeah. and uh, that's awesome. Now, you know, the, we to kind of change, like you're trying to get there, not really to change things, but uh, you're like, um, so when you go into New Guinea and there's, this is just one of the uh, things that you have to run into when trying to go and try to study a bird for crying out loud, right? Um, the, so... Uh, what are some other obstacles that you face? Like there's no other trails or pathways to get to these birds. How do you, how do you get to find them? Do you have to, I mean, literally have a machete and chop through the forest or how are you getting there? Yeah. In some cases we'll, we'll use a machete. Mostly our local friends will use a machete because we are, you know, awful at wielding a machete compared to them. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll chop at a vine for, you know, like 30 seconds before I, I cut through it and they'll just take one little you know, Whack. they just flick their wrist and it's, it's just done. Wow. Um, but yeah, we're m- working mostly in the grassland. So it's really just wandering through really tall grass. 
usually off trails. There might be some small trails that weave through our field sites that go to people's houses um, or that go to uh, hunting areas or to people's gardens, again, because it's subsistence living. Mm -hmm. So most of the trails are, if they're not going to a house, they're going to a a, a garden because um, there's gardens just scattered throughout the, the country there because that's where people get their food. So we will kind of hike along those trails to be really efficient until we get to an area that we want to start exploring for ferry runs. And we might have a territory in mind. So if we're doing a specific experiment, we might know, oh, we need to catch WBG today, you know, white, blue, green. So we need to go to this area. So we'll just kind of put our head down, carry our mist netting poles and our mist nets and our, um, you know, notebooks with all of our data sheets and just kind of put our head down and just go straight to that territory and then look around for them, for those birds in particular. Um, but then we're wandering just through the grass and sometimes the grass, uh, is How well over is our heads. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it can be, you know, over six feet tall. Uh, ideally people are, people tend to burn the grass enough that it doesn't grow that tall, which is good for us. Some relatively consistent burning, but not over burning. So I've been there and our, you know, half of our field site will be charred. That's not great, obviously, because then the birds just kind of leave that area. Um, but they do burn the grass consistently because they are often hunting wallabies, which are, mm. you know, for people who don't know what wallabies are, they're just like, you know, they're basically kangaroos. Um, it's smaller. Yeah. Typically, typically a little bit smaller. Um, then they're smaller than like, yeah, red kangaroos, which is what most people picture, but then there's some yeah. other kangaroo species that are about the same size. But Anyway, so they're often burning the grass for that or bandicoots, you know, where there's these tiny marsupials that kind of just like burrow through the grass and through the forest. Um, so they'll burn the grass to kind of flush these animals toward an area and then hunt them with bows and arrows. Uh, so we'll, we'll see this happening when we're out in the field sometimes. I've actually gone out with one, one of our local field assistants, Kipling, in, uh, in Western province. As we're out catching birds with him, he'll carry his bow and arrow sometimes. And so we'll be chasing birds and we're communicating on walkie talkies and Kipling might just disappear for a little bit because he's chasing a, a wallaby <laughs> with his bow and arrow. Uh, so yeah, so we're wandering through the grass and you know, we, it's great cause we end up encountering some of these other animals. What's not so great is that there are some really deadly snakes. Uh, wow. and so e sometimes you almost step on a snake. E sometimes the snake is kind of, uh, you know, up in the grass to where it's like knee height, which is even scarier. Cause I, you know, I wear like good, sometimes I'm wearing tall rubber boots. Sometimes I'm wearing like high hiking boots. So at least if I step on something on the ground, like hopefully it just hits my boot. But when they're up a little bit higher, that's a little bit scarier. I've yeah. had that happen before. And there are some very deadly snakes there. Um, and as you can imagine, you're far from, we're always very far from big, uh, hospitals. There might be a small health center where we work that has a limited supply of antivenom, if we're lucky. Fortunately, we have not faced that issue yet on the crew, but there are local people who have died while we've been in some of these areas from, allegedly from snake bites. Wow. Um, so venomous snakes, especially in Western province, are, are very, very common out in the grassland. Well, this sounds like what you're doing is like, there's not a lot of people that do it. There are not a lot of people... That yeah. Go out, go out into these very... Um, um, uh, forestry or, and, uh, they just where there's not a lot of, um, 
uh, industrialization or there's, you're going out into the bush, you're going out to find these things and there's like, there's, if you get bit by a snake, there's, there's very little hope for you. I mean, there, I, I imagine that there's not a lot of biologists that go out there into these areas. Not a lot. And there's and not it, many areas like it, I would assume either. That's right. Yeah. And it, you know, there have been a number over the years, but yeah, during any given year, there's not, there aren't many. Um, we're certainly not the only ones. I haven't met many of the other researchers who go out to New Guinea. Um, I'm aware, I am aware of some who are currently still going out that way. I know there are some from, from LSU who are going there, but yeah, it's, I think because it, it has a reputation of being really dangerous and certainly there are researchers who have had some really, really negative experiences there, um, who will, you know, understandably not go back to New Guinea. Uh, but then there are people like, you know, me who go there and just kind of fall in love with the place and just want to keep going back because there are so few people willing to go over there. And once, once you're there, you know, you realize there's just so little that's understood about just basic ecology. So I'm doing this really intensive physiological and behavioral research. While I'm doing that, I can kind of have these side projects where I'm doing really basic ecology. So just trying to understand, you know, the the, the members of these faunal communities, because that's not really well understood because there aren't in any of the areas where we do research, you know, we're typically the first to go there for research purposes. That's um, going to be, that's going to be kind of uh, exhilarating and kind of scary at the same time. Yeah, a little bit. It's, it's more scary for, uh, <laughs> I would say it's more scary for the, the, the local children when they see us for the first time with our bleached white skin. So like this, <laughs> this past field season, we, we started up this what, new... What is the field season? Yes, the field season... When I'm talking about field season, I'm talking about, uh, you know, the duration of time that I'm out at my field sites doing doing research. Is it, well, I'm thinking, is it, is it a season like, you know, in summer, spring? Oh, I see. Um, for is me, it... it varies. For a lot of oh, people, okay. it, it's always okay. during the summer because they have to TA throughout the year. I've been lucky that... So a field um, season is any time you can get out there. Anytime I can get out there. Oh, okay, exactly. okay. So I have you... the funding to, to get out there is the main thing. Right. And I have, you know, target target data that I'm going to collect during okay. that period. So, All right. So tell me more, Whitey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've actually, when I played soccer, I actually had people uh, yelling something about Whitey, yeah. <laughs> Whitey at me before. So that's, that's very, very familiar. Like, we support you, Whitey. I remember hearing at one point when I was playing goalie for this, this like local soccer team. <laughs> Uh, yeah. well, that's, well, that's, that's another, that's another aside, but this, okay. this last year, so I was just there between, uh, May and August in, in New Guinea, we started up a new field site. Uh, and so at this field site, we were told that we were the first white people to go to this village. Um, I learned that it seems like maybe some had gone there before who were doing like some linguistic studies a long time ago. But anyway, from this village that we were based in, I went for a long run to another village that I'd heard of that I knew was kind of down this down this trail that I used for my field site. This is like a, just an exercise run? This is just an exercise run in the afternoon. Okay. Mm-hmm. So because it's so hot in the afternoon, we take the afternoons off. I usually don't go for runs in the afternoons. My collaborator, John, does it consistently. I don't know how he does it because it's, it's so unbelievably hot that it's just, you return and you know, you're ready to just like collapse in, in, a, in, a, in a pool of sweat. Um, <laughs> But he's based in New Orleans, you know, so he's getting, oh, he's getting okay. used to the heat. But anyway, for me, I'm not typically going for runs in the afternoon, but I was feeling adventurous this day. So I thought, okay, I've heard about this other village called Tapio. I've met people from this village. They pass through the village that we live in that's along this, this trail. 
And so I followed this trail, went through this grassland, like went up into this forest and kind of dropped down from the forest. And I saw, um, I could see that the, the coast was there. So I thought I was far from the coast. I had no idea where this village was. I kept running and I thought, oh, cool, I'm going to run to the coast. This is, this is epic. Uh, I didn't know I was going to the coast. And I bottomed out close to the coast and I could see this village like, okay, great. I arrived at Tapio. I made it because I was starting to doubt. At this point, you know, I was pretty long ways into the run and I was getting a bit worried. Like, maybe I don't know where I'm going. I get to this village and there's only one uh, single individual in the village. And it's this tiny, probably like two or three year old boy. He sees me running shirtless with my, you know, just bleached white skin. Um, and he looks at me cause I'm running right toward him. Um, he's never seen a white person. Apparently no white people have ever been to this village before. And he looks at me and just starts screaming, turns his back and runs into his house. And then his <laughs> mom came out holding him and looking to see what he was terrified of. Yeah. And I just gave her a wave and, you know, kind of, uh, I complimented her village. You know, I said, it's a nice village. And like, is it okay that I'm, that I'm here? Cause I'd, was told that no one like me had ever gone there before. She seemed a little bit nervous to talk to me, but she was friendly enough. And so I just hung out there for a little bit and then made, made the run back. But that kid was just, uh, still terrified when I, when I ran away, you know, I looked back and he was just still kind of, you know, being held by his mother. Like, what is that monster that just descended upon my village? And, and I'm just going to say, you're not ugly. Just, just I, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're not monstrous. I'm very, I'm very white. <laughs> yeah, very white. Very white. Um, especially, yeah. especially at the beginning of a field season before I've you know faced the sun for a while. Yeah. But that that sort of brings me to another thing that I learned that along that run, I went through this open grassy area that was kind of just beyond our field site, and I learned from our friends in this village that we were working in that that was their their battleground back during cannibal times. Um. So. Back when they had this this custom of, of cannibalism, what they would do in this area is they they would agree on a certain date to meet at this this open grass area that I ran through, unknowingly um, that this was a battlefield. But this was their battlefield, so they'd agree to meet at a certain date, a certain time, and people from these different tribes. I think that's the level here. It's not clan, so I think the clans would fight together, but tribes would go against each other. So these different tribes would come together and they would line up single file. So you'd have these warrior men who are lining up single file. One person is holding a spear and the leader of the group is in the front. And if you're the, the group that's having the spear being thrown at you, you're following the leader because he's looking directly at the guy with the spear across from them. And he can see where the spear is about to go. So he'll duck, say, to the down and to the left and then everyone in that single file line has to follow the person in front of them, make sure that they match their movements because otherwise you're going to get hit with the spear. You get hit with a spear and that spear has poison on the end of it that's naturally derived. So they use, I think there's a, a poison root there that they actually use for fishing. This is a conservation issue um, that there are some local groups trying to work with. Um, they use it for fishing because it, you know, will just kind of, it has some neurological, damaging neurological effects. So they would use, I think, this root, and also there's a, a particular berry, I think, that is poisonous that they would use. They dip the tip of the spear in that. So you get st if you get stuck with a spear, the custom was that you just it, lay down and you just wait for death. It's not you know honorable to run away with this, even if you could survive. Um, and they're able to just kind of drag you away. And then that's 
that's that's the meal. Um, what? So and, and they had a, apparently. I don't know if this is only true in this area or if this is broadly true, but in this area at least they had a like a referee on hand for these <laughs> meetings. So everyone knew. Okay, Foul. these two tribes, right? <laughs> so it was very. Um, <laughs> It was a very honorable. Uh, yeah. It was a very okay. honorable affair, apparently, okay. at least in this area. Okay. Um, yeah. So <laughs> wow. So that a battlefield is right there. And wow. this is the great thing about doing research in New Guinea is that, for one, you can go to places that no one like us has ever been to, which just comes with a whole suite of like interesting interactions with people. People are so curious to talk to you. It's it's really interesting to talk to them to hear what their life is all about. Um, but then. There's just serendipitous stuff that happens like that, where you get back from a run, like, oh, I ran through this battlefield. Um, and then you learn about this whole, you know, custom that they used to have. And then as we're talking about this, say, they say, okay, yeah, we have actually some of these spears from cannibal times in the church. So they just went to the church and grabbed these, these big black palm spears. They would cut this, this black palm um, that you can sharpen really well to a fine point. And they brought over these spears that were, that were used during cannibal times. So we could see directly what they were using um, for this ritual. So it's just, I, I mean, the number of times that something like that happens in New Guinea is, you know, it's relatively common where you just have this unexpected, interesting, you know, cultural uh, experience and it just kind of falls into your lap. Um, so it's, it's a really, uh, yeah, really interesting place to, to get to do research. People are freaking crazy. Yeah. And just, uh, just not, okay, crazy is maybe not the right word. Just like cultural, how things come about, like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You know, you, you, me, how about we just line everybody up? Okay, yeah, I'll, yeah, we'll line up our guys. Okay, and then we'll chuck spears at each other. Right. Uh, no, I got a better idea. <laughs> Let's dip it in poison. Dude, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll eat them. Oh, man. Yeah, even better. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? It's, it's just what's it in, kind of absurd to me is that you would just agree that if you got stuck with a spear that like, okay, yeah, I understand that this is, this might happen to me. And even if I only get, you know, mildly damaged that. I know that I, I'm going to be dragged away and eaten and I'm going to respect that, you know, or if the, the referee, I guess, has to understand like, yeah, I'm going to enforce that someone is eaten at the end of this. Like that is just, it's a, it's a wild, it's a wild custom. Wow. Wow. And that, that doesn't go on anymore, right? That does so. not go on anymore. <laughs> no, but they're, they're very, um, yeah, very, very aware that it's a, it's an interesting part of their past and very <laughs> eager to tell us about it. But also to, of course, tell us, hey, we're, we're not going to do this anymore. They, we joke around with them about this. Like the people, yeah, people have a great sense of humor there. So, um, you know, they'll they'll joke about eating us from time to time. Um, you know, we'll play into those jokes a little bit. But, you know, like they're, they're aware that it's kind of an unusual part of their past. Um, kind of partly proud of it in a way, but also happy that it's no longer the, the custom because, of course, they don't want to be eaten like most people. Yeah. It's uh, a scary <laughs> experience I imagine yeah. to, to go through. Uh, yeah. So, and now it's the churches who house all of these weapons because it was the missionaries who came over and said, Hey, maybe you shouldn't do this anymore. And so what they've done is they've collected all of these spears and whatever else was uh, used. Are they Christian in, in, churches, in I assume? Christian churches. Okay. Yeah. And, and they house them in, in churches. Um, because it's sort of symbolic of okay, we've replaced this custom with this one. 
Oh, oh. and and again, well, where else are you going to put museum-like objects? Right. You know, but it's cool that they preserved it. You know, I I've been to other places where they have a really interesting. Well, every every place, of course, if you go back far enough, has some very interesting, unique customs. But New Guinea seems at least a little bit unique relative to other places that I've gone, in that the people are very aware of how unique their culture is, and they've done a really good job of preserving it. So, if someone like us comes there and we're interested in, you know, seeing some of these artifacts, they can just kind of go and get them. Yeah. Um, and like in this village, to send me off when I was leaving to move on to another another village to do research. They uh, assembled a group of local dancers. So they dressed up in their traditional costume, which is mostly feathers, but also some grasses, like grass skirts and stuff, um, and did these traditional dances um, with these called kundu drums that have this uh, goanna skin, which is kind of like a giant lizard, like a giant monitor lizard. Hmm. Um, so they stretched this goanna skin over a, a drum that I think is made of some, some kind of palm. And they'll play these drums and kind of dance and step with each other and sing these these traditional songs. It's just this really vibrant uh, display of of feathers and, and music while they're doing it. It's amazing. And it's uniquely, it's like a uniquely, uh, I guess, Melanesian phenomenon. Um, oh, wow. This, this particular type of mm-hmm. type of dance. And it's just, it's just kind of, you know, something that they'll do just to kind of thank you for coming to their area and investing a little bit and spending time like it it's just really really uh really a great way to be to be sent off from from a place like it sounds really, really rewarding actually it's really rewarding yeah that's nice um yeah it's just part of part of the the hospitality there that you know they want to make it clear that you know they a- appreciate people like us coming over there and, and bringing some resources with us even if our resources are you know limited by how much funding we have you know it's not like we're coming there with a, a lot of money to spread around, but we do spread the, around the money as, as best we can to people who are helping with our project. And we also just befriend, you know, we're, we're friends with each other. So like we give them gifts, they give us gifts. It's, it's just a, it's a really, uh, yeah. Fulfilling exchange every time we go over there. That's cool. Now, like you're, you're talking about field sites. What is a field site? I'm mean, going to go back a little bit to that. Cause I don't, I mean, in my mind, yeah. a field site to me is, uh, you're sleeping at a tent. Is that pretty much it or not? Yeah, so fortunately, we don't sleep in, in tents there. Um, but a field site would be any area where we're doing our field research. So we have about, yeah, like four or five unique field sites. So each field site is a, is a, is a village, really. So it's a village that we're going to live in that has grassland nearby where our birds are, are abundant. And you stay um, in somebody's house? Yeah, so we stay in someone's house. In in some cases, in rare cases, there is an actual guest house that we'll stay in. So in communities that are a little bit bigger. The one we work in called Oboe Village in Western Province is actually, it's pretty big. It's a village of about 2,000 people. Um, And so they have a a guest house there. And so we stay in the guest house. It's a guest house because they presumably would host other people. Whenever I've been there, which is up to like three months at a time, there have been no other guests coming by. Like the agreement is that we just kind of rent it out during our our time period. But, um, yeah, it's often a house just made of bush materials that someone might let us use and they'll go like live in their garden house. That's sometimes the arrangement. So people usually have a garden house like by their garden. So if they're gardening all day in this far away area that has really fertile soil, 
then they they can you know crash there at the end of the uh, at the end of a long day and then carry all the goods back the next day, or they might stay there for weeks. Um, so the arrangement differs by village, but it's always a house. I sometimes still sleep in my hammock because I have a nice camping hammock and it keeps me cool. Um, and also then I can go carry it to places that are a little bit quieter because sometimes the villages can actually be a bit loud. Bluetooth speakers are kind of a new thing in New Guinea, it seems like. And uh, people are kind of going nuts for, for Bluetooth speakers. So at night, oh, wow. even in a tiny village of like 40 people, um, it can get it can get really loud at night because the people will hang out and listen to music. And there, there's not really a sense of like, hey, you know, we don't want to hear your music at this neighboring house. Because I, I think most people most people are happy to just kind of join the, the gathering and listen to the music. But, you know, we're going to bed early because we're waking up pre-dawn yeah. to get out while it's still cool and while the birds are moving around. So you're, you're describe what the, this, this, your, your guest house, is there a toilet in there? Is there, is no. it, is it en suite? <laughs> no. So, yeah, is there so, a shower? So, what do you got in there? Just like, that's uh, a, a, a room, square room, yeah. bed. And what's the bed made of? And do the, okay. I'm going to ask the question, like everybody's always curious about what toilets, what are toilets like? Toilets. Know? Yeah. Toilets. Generally, once we're out in our research villages at our field sites, are pit toilets, um, but they're they're made entirely made of bush material. So that would outhouse probably basically, look right? like a hut, yeah, a tiny hut, mm. and you just squat over a hole. And so no bench seating. Sometimes there's a bench. Okay. Sometimes you just squat. They they get the sense that we want to sit, so they'll if they know that we're coming, they will like build one <laughs> where we can sit. I I don't mind. I don't mind. Uh, squatting it's in some cases i prefer too, because right? they're like in one of our villages fire ants have come over within Whoa. the last like five years five or ten years um hitching a ride somehow and over. so if you sit down um you know you don't you don't feel it while you're sitting down but then you get up and you know you walk back to the house from the toilet and you're you know the your, i guess hamstrings are just you know lit up with just fire ant bites you know just all of a sudden you're itching and burning all over Ooh. where you're sitting Oh. So squatting is probably better. The the general <laughs> rule is that you go in there, ideally when it's dark. So like I try to go in there pre-dawn exclusively and go in there with a the headlamp, but turn your headlamp off or just face forward. You don't want to look around because there are going to be some big spiders in there probably. There's going to be a really? lot of cockroaches typically. Um, whatever other insects, you know, there's sometimes rats and, and mice in there crawling around. So I would just prefer to not know and just kind of take <laughs> get care in of position, it. get your get business posi- done, yeah. and get out. Exactly. Okay. So I, I took I took a video <laughs> this last field season <laughs> where I it was kind of like a classic a oh, classic man. morning in the toilet where I go in there when it's dark and I don't I try not to touch anything and but I will set the toilet paper on this little um uh, this kind of a stick that's used as a brace and I can kind of prop the toilet paper there so that's the only area that I'm reaching toward. And after I finished, you know, I looked over and right above where I put the toilet paper is this giant, you know, spider about the size of my fist. Uh, so that's the one place I don't want a spider because that's the one place where I'm repeatedly putting my hand like, wow. So I took my phone out and kind of took a video capturing the moment because that's not exactly an uncommon occurrence. Wow. Um, ah, so they use toilet paper there. I mean, or, you know. Well, we more. do. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> what's the custom? Custom is to use leaves, leaves or, or okay. coconut or a lot of times like in Milne Bay province, because it's um, 
pretty much entirely coastal. Uh, so it's like coconut fringed beaches and it's really idyllic, uh, a really idyllic lines landscape. So there's coconuts everywhere. So they will use the, like the husk of a coconut. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I've used that and it's, it's perfectly, uh, it's perfectly good. It's just kind of a pain to have to collect it. Yeah. So we, we do bring toilet paper. Um, but most, I would say most people don't use it there cause it's kind of a luxury and you have to use your money wisely when, you know, you're only making a little bit off of whatever you bring to market. Um, you know, you don't most, again, most people don't have a job. So spending on something that you don't totally need. And it seems weird just in general. It is. It is kind of weird. You know, we yeah. have, we, we, we have to, in the United States, we buy a product made by a corporation for our poop. Right. That's weird. Yeah. That's really strange. And that's made of plant material, but you, I mean, a lot of plant material is like perfectly good for it. Yeah. It's really just that we decided that, you know, at least for me, you know, like, I, I just don't want to take the time to go and oh no I'm not I'm not I'm not, I'm not, leaves I'm not, I'm not casting <laughs> aspersions yeah no no I think whatever you got to do to, <laughs> you know, it's fine but it's a yeah we have to buy it you know we yeah. just use a leaf well, just use a leaf oh, yeah, that's a good idea well that's 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 one of the kind of one of the main themes about spending so much time there is it does kind of it really does help me identify when I'm back in the U S just even as you know, someone who's pretty low on the totem pole as a grad student, I'm mm. making just enough money to make ends meet. I'm not living luxuriously by any means, by mm. any Western standards. But I can kind of identify those areas where it's like, wow, even for me at this level, like being like right at the poverty line with what I make as a grad student, I still am using a whole bunch of things and buying a whole bunch of things that I don't totally need. You really identify that. It can help to identify those areas when you go to a place like New Guinea because they are just, they've cut out they're not going to have anything that they don't totally need. And it's amazing what you can get by on, you know, uh, you don't really need much just to live a happy life over there. I mean, yeah. I would say overall people, people, the, the average person seems a lot happier over there than over here and a lot less stressed out because you have all everything you need there. You're born into a family that owns land. You marry someone who also owns lands. So then you get more land for you and your children and it continues on that way. You know how to build a house if you're a man. Um, you know how to like, like raise children and you know uh, cook if you're a woman. You know it's very traditional, so the women tend to, you know, be carry on most of the burden of child rearing and um, and cooking. The men, you know, have to build the house and do a lot of the gardening. The women will help with that, of course, too. And some of these dynamics are different across, you know different, uh, different tribes, I guess, and across different provinces, but typically that's kind of the arrangement, but either way, uh, male or female, you know, you tend to have all the resources you need to, for you and your family to, to survive and be happy. I mean, more than survive to, to really thrive off of local resources. Um, so it really, I really like going there to kind of, kind of break out of some of the, uh, some of the arrangements that you find yourself in, in, in a more like complicated, uh, social structure in like the a country, like the U S yeah. you go to New Guinea and you live a lot simpler and you sort of identify those areas where you're, you're really making your life more complicated. Yeah. Why, than why do you need a credit card? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you, uh, you need more stuff and barter. Why, why do you need what more you need? stuff? Oh yeah. But I, I kind of like stuff. I mean, I'm looking around here, looking around this podcast studio, you know, 
<laughs> like I've got a lot of stuff, you know, think about this. And, you know, I'm a rich man in general in the, you know, and I'm, and I'm not. Yeah. This would be more, more possessions, I think, than, than the average, uh, person in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Well, this is a lifetime, you know, I'm 52, so I've gathered all this stuff over a while, yeah. but, but still, you know, sure. there's, I have a lot of stuff, you know, I don't, I don't need a lot of stuff. You get right down to it. You convince yourself that you, that you do. I think all of us do that where you, mm-hmm. you kind of confuse necessities from, you know, just things that you just desire to, yeah. to have that you don't yeah, It's totally a nice need. reset to go back to something like that. Where... It's a great, it's a great reset. I think, I think on both ends, it's really helpful because then of course, at some point, I, I absolutely love spending time there. And honestly, I've, I've, I've thought about the possibility of living there long-term, um, you know, either working with a local university there, um, or working for a conservation outlet there and actually being based in New Guinea. Um, I think I could do that and be happy doing that, but I do kind of like this lifestyle where I, I can spend a good chunk of my year here, a good chunk of my year there. So when I leave for New Guinea, I'm ready to kind of take a break from being plugged in all the time here. Then at the end of my long field season, you know, which is going to be three to five months, I kind of start to feel ready for some of those comforts again. And then I come back here and I can just really appreciate for a good month. You know, I just appreciate, oh, my computer is about to die. I'm just going to plug it into an outlet. Like, oh, I I want water. I'm just going to go over to the faucet. Um, and water's just going to come out. It's amazing. I don't have to go to a spring and go and, and, and collect this. Like, or oh, I want to take a shower. Get yeah, a hamburger. I'm, I'm, well, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a pescatarian, but... Oh, okay. Well, you know, fish and chips. I, I had to work that in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is what this is all about. Just, How do you know when somebody's uh, a, a pescatarian? Pesca- yeah, exactly. They'll tell you. Yeah, <laughs> and I do a lot of CrossFit. No, yeah. I don't actually do CrossFit. Okay. Um, but, uh, but, you know, you get the food. Yeah. You can go out and just get whatever exactly. food you want, and they'll make it and bring yeah. it to you for a reasonable price. Right. Exactly. Um, but there... T- t- talking about diet now though i guess that's a good opening to talk about diet because here i have like a very set diet and i watch what i eat very carefully i'm very intentional about you know choosing things that are both nutritious but also what i deem as ethical i'm not perfect you know um but I, i do my best here but then when i go over to new guinea it's just whatever whatever they serve me that's that's what i'm gonna eat so one one thing that i sort of built into um, my field seasons there is when I go to a community, we've always employed people to help with the research. But what I wanted to do in addition to that, because it tends to be men who are brought to us as people to help us out in the field. Um, I wanted to kind of spread out those, the, the, the money that we're bringing to these communities to more people and particularly women. So again, women are typically doing the cooking and they're doing the laundry. So we also hire a cook and we hire usually a, a, a group of women who can rotate doing laundry and our cook will rotate as well. So whoever our cook is, you know, they just kind of bring us food from their garden. And then if they're usually, if their husband goes out or their brother goes out and hunts something like a cassowary or a wallaby, wallaby or a bandicoot or a cuscus, which is this arboreal marsupial. So it lives up in the trees. Um, that's what we're going to eat. Uh, so I don't have, any restrictions while I'm there. Um, whatever, whatever is waiting for me when I get back from the field, that's, that's what I'm going to eat. Thank you. At that point, I'm going to be very hungry. There, it's not really feasible to buy many snacks there. We buy some crackers and that's about it. So while we're out in the field, we might be out in the field for like six hours in the morning 
running around chasing birds and we're not really eating much. So by the time we get back to the house, we're ready for a big meal. So mm. whatever it is, we're, we're putting it down. Good. Um, and then we're just going to heat that up often. Well, oftentimes we just eat it cold for dinner. So we just eat the same, really the same set of things every single day. Um, and it's just whatever comes from the garden and whatever comes, comes from the bush or from the, from the ocean, if we're on the coast, you know, we'll hopefully have some fish from the reef or, you know, get some fish from the river if we're along the fly river in Western province. So we end up having a, like some, some pretty adventurous, adventurous meals while we're there as well. Um, but it all starts from just rice and, and root vegetables. Like when you say adventurous, besides like, you know, just strange meats, what else? It's you? really just, well, it's, it's really just that it's the strange meats. So, um, yeah, like I, I, I guess I've listed a lot of them, but, um, you know, we've had turtle from rivers before. That's not really great. I am sort of ashamed to admit that we ate sea turtle this last year because there was a big meal that was kind of uh, made in our honor. Um, and the village people went out and got a giant, uh, giant sea turtle um, while they're out fishing. And so we had that, which that is... Uh, you know, like sea turtles are f- protected worldwide. Um, so it's technically illegal, but of course there's zero enforcement there. So when we're in a research community for long enough, we can kind of... Well, do they even know? We can kind of share some of these things over time, you know, yeah. without it coming across as us coming there as foreigners and trying to control how they use their resources. But in this area, this is our first time there. So it wasn't really appropriate for me to say, hey, that this is this is inappropriate. Yeah. Um, this is wrong. After they made this meal in your right. honor. Yeah. yeah this can be kind so of tough. Yeah, welcome coming back on that. <laughs> Good luck coming back on that. Exactly. Yeah. So you just kind of have to, you know, say thank you and, and try it. Uh, so, yeah. And, and then we've had weird insect related things. So um, I had some, some of these giant beetle grubs that were actually. Oh, yeah. Were they still good. alive? No. So I was worried that they're going to serve uh, them yeah. to us. Okay. That alive. would make me a bit we uh, them. queasy. Yeah. They were actually quite good. It was how like, do you, how do you cook like them? prawns almost or like shrimp. Um, really? Yeah. So we, we cooked some, we fried some over a fire. Uh, so we kind of deep fried them in oil and then we roasted some. The roasted ones were not as good because they kind of explode a lot of goo in your mouth. Mm. <laughs> mm. But, but the ones that were fried were really crispy and it really tasted like, I guess crayfish is probably the closest or crawdads, mm. you know, mm. it's closest uh, analog, but giant. I mean, we're talking about like the... Uh, I don't know, maybe three inches long, an inch wide. Wow, um, yeah, that's... really big beetle grubs. Um, and they, yeah, those were surprisingly good. I've had this dish, this traditional dish, where they harvest a harvest seaweed and then they go and collect uh, these weaver ants. So they're called weaver ants because they weave ants together, or not weave ants together. They weave leaves together to make a nest. Um, and so these things are actually the bane of our existence at some of our field sites. Cause if you walk through a small forest patch to kind of connect the grassland where we're studying our birds, you can take one of these nests to your face and just get covered in hundreds of these ants oh, and they man. sting. Oh, those little bastards. Yeah. They sting. Um, it doesn't hurt that much, but when you have hundreds of them, like especially on your face stinging oh. you, that's, uh, it's not pleasant. Um, <laughs> but they release this formic acid when they sting. And so it has this lime taste. So I actually, just to get kind of an injection of flavor while I'm walking around, because we have so little injection of <laughs> flavor oftentimes in our diet. So I will like 
lick these ants um, just to have like this shot of lime taste because it's actually quite pleasant um, when you're controlling. How big is this ant? Not that big. I mean, the size of a, a I don't know, typical. Like a black ant? Even, yeah, like, like, like a black ant. Like you yeah. have around here? Like what, what you'd have okay. in your driveway here. Okay. Um, but anyway, so they'll, they'll go and collect one of these nests that have larvae in there. So they have like these fat, rich larvae, um, like pretty, I think, nutritionally dense larva and then they have some of the big queens in there those are a lot bigger like probably triple the size uh that are winged and you know they combine these ants this ant nest with the seaweed and i think they'll squeeze some lime over it if they have access to to some citrus and then you eat them and the ants are still writhing around as you're eating this dish with the seaweed and the eggs so you're feeling the 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 ants moving around as you're eating them especially the queens because those are huge you might get stung a little bit on your tongue as you're eating them, which kind of just releases this lime flavor, uh, which is, you know, again, it's pretty pleasant. I might be a bit unusual in that I enjoy that. I don't think my uh, <laughs> my no, collaborators I'm... enjoy that quite as <laughs> quite as much. I kind of have a, have a reputation for, uh, you know, enjoying that more than what's typical. That but, doesn't sound uh, too bad to me. I don't know about the the, the, the things moving around. The in moving your mouth. around thing is that a that would weird. be that would be kind of tough. But I can understand the. The, the like, uh, especially ants are kind of crunchy. Um, but it, yeah, I, that doesn't sound bad, especially if there's a lime flavor to it. It actually sounds good to me, quite honestly. I mean, like, uh, I don't know, but that, that doesn't sound too bad to me. It's the grubs that are gonna, you know, I can just see, I, cause I, you know, I've, I've kind of seen these things on the internet or wherever where it's like a big white grub and it just looks like people will just eat them raw, like, you know, while they're yeah. still wiggling. I'm like, that's ah, a bit much. But then again, I've also seen where people have gone, like anthropologists, gone to these places where they eat these live grubs and they bring them spaghetti and they're like, what? No, no, I'm not. No, Just, I'm not eating that. You know, what? what is, no, you know. That's so funny that, that you bring that, that up because while, right after having these grubs, uh, I had brought, they, they're just starting to produce uh, chocolate there. It's becoming a main export for, for PNGs. They grow it there? For Papua New Guinea, sorry. Um, they Papua grow uh, chocolate there? Um, they grow, yeah, they grow uh, cocoa, cocoa there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're making this real, it's really good chocolate. So they're starting to sell it in the markets there now, which is great for us. So like we can have, um, it's, it's a hell of a treat when you're, you know, out in the bush for a long time. And and eating lime flavored ants. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'm done with the ants now, uh, now that we can get chocolate. So we were, we were on this expedition, which I can go into more detail later, but so basically we, we had very limited food with us and we were kind of planning on getting some food from the bush to kind of subsidize the stuff that we had brought up this mountain. Cause it was a lot of effort to get all this food up there. And anyway, these are local friends were chopping away at this tree that was filled with these giant grubs. And so we ate these grubs. And then after that, you know, I was thanking them for, for getting these grubs for us and saying how they were surprisingly delicious. You know, they got a kick out of watching us eat the grubs because we were very tentative about it. And then, and then I offered them chocolate in turn to kind of wash it down. And one of the guys, it was his first time having chocolate. I think it's everyone's first time having chocolate of the local people there. But one one of the guys who is the main like uh, larva harvester, he just had this face of like eating the most bitter, disgusting thing he has ever had. Like he could barely choke down this tiny little piece of dark chocolate. Yeah, and he was looking at us like, "How? Why would you choose to eat this? <laughs> like, man, you were just eating these grubs that are roasted over a fire. Where they're just exploding this goo into your mouth." You know, I'm a pretty adventurous eater, but like that's that, that's pretty gross. Yeah, <laughs> uh, 
but he was just sucking those down. But then when it came to the chocolate, just that was just the most vile thing he had ever tasted. <laughs> well, you know, dark uh, chocolate can be kind of bitter I and guess. a bit chalky, and you know, depending on the, you know the person. Maybe it's the chalky. Dark. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about the chalkiness. It could have been yeah. a, a texture, a texture issue. Um, so it's it's funny how you know, depending on where you're from, you have just these different senses of what is kind of a surprising and disgusting disgusting taste um yeah and and coffee too when i'm when i'm over there now it's it's easier to get coffee so they've emerged as a pretty big producer of coffee so the things that i bring back from new guinea usually for friends here are coffee and chocolate now because both are really good and they're really cheap over there because they grow both um so i i've been making coffee over there and and sharing it with people they're used to just drinking this like Nescafe powders, instant coffee. Oh, yeah, that's everywhere. It's everywhere. And then they add an insane amount of sugar. Yeah. Um, to that. It's so bitter. And, 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 and uh, you know, like powdered creamer. Yeah. So I've yeah. I've had my my local friends there try the coffee that I'm making in like a... like a, press a, pot? A, yeah. a French press, yeah. French press, yeah. Um, just black coffee. And the faces they produce tasting this coffee for the first time, I mean, no, not one of them has... <laughs> Has liked it. It's just the most bitter, disgusting thing in yeah, the world. Yeah, it's, it's an acquired taste. Um, yeah, which I guess I understand if you're just drinking Nescafe with sugar and cream all the time. Yeah. Um, but that to me is now that's that's another luxury that I that I have over there. I wasn't doing that before, but I've I'm bringing over like a a, a, a one of those Stanley French press travel mugs, and it's just oh. the most. It really really helps with you know making being way out in the bush feel a lot more comfortable and at home. It's like, it feels like such a luxury to have real coffee while I'm over there. Cause it's, it's just coffee and water. That's it. Yeah. And, and maybe some tea. How do you grind it? You yeah. I just buy off. pre-ground stuff. Oh, okay, okay. And I just need to make sure that when I'm in, you know, whatever town that we're kind of flying into before going out to our more distant field sites that I really stock up and anticipate how much I'm going to have <laughs> because once you run out, that's it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you, you really have yeah, to have you know, a few months ration. worth of that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, there's one thing that we we had talked about before, but uh, I wanted to hit up, and that was pirates. Pirates. You know, and this is, uh, people think, and I kind of, you know, I kind of say, oh, pirates, you know, but really, this is serious shit here. This is like, we're not kidding. These are actual nefarious bad dudes. Can you kind of tell me your experience with that? Yeah. Yeah. So where I encountered pirates, I didn't fortunately directly encounter them but this last field season again um in august when i was there i went on this this expedition that i was just referring to where we had the grubs so this expedition was all about looking for this bird of paradise that local people had told us about that was likely to be a new species if it if it existed um there is nothing that should have been on this island that resembled this this bird so I was told about this years before when I just traveled to this particular island, um, Ferguson Island, um, again in Milne Bay province. So I was told about this species by some local people when I was traveling there as a tourist um, outside of my field season. And so I, I vied to, you know, come back before my research program was done as a, as a graduate student over there. So I'd gotten some funding to go over that way. And so I was making arrangements to head across the the open ocean to this this island to kind of follow up from these things that we were told about this bird that was potentially there. And unfortunately, what happened is right before we were going to go on this expedition, this passage that was already dangerous because the sea is so rough that the boats that go across it often capsize and people drown every year. 
during the time of year that we were trying to go across because it's when the trade winds are blowing, the, the waves are really bad, the current is really bad. Um, anyway, so we already knew that that danger was going to be there. And this is like a, an open boat, right? This is an open boat, a small dinghy, probably well, like going 20 across feet the ocean. Long, going across the ocean, across some pr- pretty big swells during this time of year. Wow. But we were prepared for that. We knew that that was going to be a risk. What changed during the time that I was there is right before we were about to go, I flew into this province and I was talking with, again, Serena, um, our, our the project mom there. She was arranging some details for me. She knew that I wanted to go on this expedition. She owns a dinghy, so she was kind of our point of contact. So we were going to take her boat across. And when I arrived, I'd been talking with her on the phone for you know weeks at this point. She didn't say anything about this. And then when I arrived, she said, hey, by the way, it's really dangerous now because the piracy has gotten really bad. There are some World War II era weapons that were uh, discovered on a neighboring island. And the local criminal group found these weapons, found this weapons cache, and they these weapons are currently working. These World War II era rifles, they're buried with a bunch of ammunition. They're buried intelligently so that, you know, when you dig them up, that they're, they're ready to be used, employed for, you know, <laughs> nefarious means. Um, so there's a recent, very recent rash of piracy. So right before we were about to go across, there were a lot of dinghies that were being held up at gunpoint. There were a couple of recent murders, unfortunately. Um, and so, even the local government officials, we met with some of them to kind of ask them what they thought. And they said, hey, that's that's the area that we do our work, but we're, we're not going across now because it's too dangerous. So we kind of had to go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, is this is this worth dealing with? Is this risk worth dealing with? So we actually met with the police initially, got kind of a sense from them about how safe it was, and they cautioned us too. They said, well, I would reconsider going. Um, but if you want to go, you could take some of our police officers with you, you have to pay them this daily per diem, daily per diem, uh, this daily rate. Um, and they'll escort you with some weapons and this will, you know, we can't guarantee anything. This will probably keep you safe. Um, so I ran this arrangement by, uh, Serena and her son-in-law, who is the captain of this dinghy. He was a friend of mine and they kind of thought it over. And then John, who's the captain of the dinghy, he was the one who said, to Serena, who then relayed it to me that, hey, look, this is is problematic if we take police across because this criminal group, which kind of runs the show in this area, they're going to know now that our dinghy, which has our brand on it, because all these dinghies have to have, you know, a unique name and they have a unique area that they kind of go to. They're going to know that we associate with the police. And so we're going to be on blast for you know, the rest of our time doing this work. And they just started to make passenger runs. So for them to, you know, be able to keep doing this work, they couldn't be associated with the police because this criminal group is really powerful. Um, and they would be associated with the police forever. Oh, yeah. So you, so you want to make sure that you're on the good side of the bad guys a little bit. Exactly. You, you know, at least uh, don't be a target of theirs. But it, but it gets, it gets really complicated. I, I'm still trying to make sense of how this all worked, but Basically, the arrangement that we came um, came to is that John, again, the, the captain of, of the dinghy and a friend of mine who I'd actually worked with in the field, he's trained to do all the bird research with us, um, just so happens that his cousins are kind of, uh, you know, well-connected to this, this the, the organized criminal group in the area. But these are the organized criminals that don't have a reputation for being violent. They do some holdups and that kind of stuff. Um but they're not the violent ones. The violent ones are usually the, the younger, 
the younger boys who get their hands on these weapons and they kind of run rampant. And so this more organized criminal group tries to keep those young boys at bay because they really don't want anyone to get hurt. Again, this is just what we're told. So we fortunately then had sort of some local contacts within this um, within this this family that's kind of connected in a way to to the the local criminal group. And so we just hired some people who are kind of familiar to these islands that we were going to, to do this expedition. Um, so some men who were familiar to the criminals, whether or not they were criminals themselves, like, I don't really know. I didn't ask. They seemed like <laughs> nice people who had families. And, um, but anyway, we, 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 you know, recruited them. They're willing to come with us, um, to ensure that we are going to be safe because they knew from hearing from John um, that that we were we were good good people who were just trying to do a little bit of research and hopefully by doing research you know we're we're spreading out some some benefits to our time there. So we went across this passage with these people who are hopefully known to the the pirates and just every time we passed every time we passed another dinghy I, my heart kind of sank a little bit and I had my my binoculars there and I was passing it to um, the people we had hired to kind of look at the other dinghies because they would know, okay, this is, this is one that might have, might have pirates on it. This is one that doesn't. So fortunately we'd never passed any of the pirates. Presumably if we did, they would have seen that they recognized some of the people with us who they're friendly with. And then they wouldn't have, uh, you know, touched us. God, I'd have uh, been scared getting in that dinghy. Just it was to, scary. Yeah. I mean, to go do a, something just to, you know, yeah, that would be scary for me. And, and, and then keep in mind that, you know, this whole time we're also just rolling over these massive swells. Um, so there's concerns about just making it over the waves safely. And then when you pass another boat, then you're looking at that boat like, okay, is this a pirate? Because the pirates know that this is the time of year where the dinghies have to go a little bit slower and really focus on weaving through the waves. So that allows them to then yeah, kind of the, prey upon the boats a little bit better. Yeah, because they've got a bigger boat that can probably is more uh, ocean-worthy. Well, so, and that's that's the other thing that made us feel a little bit safer is they they tend to target 60-horsepower engines because those are like the fastest engines you can get there. We were using a 45-horsepower engine, so we were told that it was less likely that they would target us because they listen. So if they hear a 60-horsepower engine coming, they're going to leave wherever their little compound is, you know, Um and chase after that sound until they are able to get to that because that that would then allow them to they have a big arsenal of these 60 horsepower engines there aren't a lot of dinghies who have those and then they can always outrace whatever boat they're targeting um so fortunately we're using a a, a slower engine so that that also made it a little bit safer for us um but yeah it was kind of pins and needles getting across and then yeah there there <laughs> we got across to the neighboring island to the one that we wanted to go to that had a, a government station. And there, there were some realities of life there that I, I can't probably shouldn't uh, like talk about here. Um, but some things having to do with like the criminal structure there that we kind of became privy to, uh, during our brief stay there. Um, so our friends basically had to check in with some of these, uh, some of the most sought after criminals, um, in the province, um, check in with them and make them aware that we're here, um, to do research. And when they see this, these two white guys, so it was me and, um, 
a field assessment assistant, Jason, um, when they see us around that we're not to be messed with, we're good people. Um, we're bringing some benefit to the people. So that arrangement was kind of made behind the scenes and I wasn't part of that. Um, and then we were, uh, we continued our journey to the island that we were going after. So this was an all day trip with just a lot of, a lot of points of, of stress where I, I wasn't sure if we were going to make it to where we were going to, where we were trying to go to. And then finally, at the end of the day, we made it to Ferguson Island, which is where we're going to start the expedition, but not after we experienced just the worst, the worst open ocean conditions that I've ever experienced where we were going over these massive white cap waves, um, over reefs. So we had to like dodge, you know, dodge reefs along the way. Cause it's all coral fringed. So these reefs can be really shallow. So you have to, you have to make sure that of course you're not dragging the, the rudder through the reefs. Um, so that may meant that in certain cases we had to go close to where the waves were breaking. And one wave in particular, we, we almost, we almost flipped in. It, it broke within a second of us going over the wave. We were riding this wave and then we crested it and then it just immediately broke. And that thing would have just flipped us. Um, and my, my field assistant, Jason is a surfer and he, so he was more keenly aware of just how dangerous this was than I was. I was so focused on just not vomiting from seasickness. <laughs> um, and just kind of part of me was just kind of enjoying, you know, having this just ridiculous adventure and focusing on just not hurting myself. I almost, I thought that I was going to break my back at one point. Cause I, I was at the front of the boat and I like went up in the air on one of these waves and then dropped down on my back on the spine of the boat. Ooh. Yeah. It was really painful. So I was focused on other things, but he said to me afterwards and we were able to talk, you know, um, cause we couldn't talk during this moment cause it was so stressful and loud that we, he really thought we were going to you know, flip in this wave. We would have been, we would have been fine. Probably, you know, all of us, all of us knew how to swim. The shore wasn't that far away. We would have swum to shore. Um, we would have lost, we would have lost a lot of, we would have lost equipment that we were bringing to do research and we would have lost, um, several weeks worth of food. Um, it isn't just, you know, personal things like phones and clothing items and that kind of stuff. The main loss would have been the dinghy for Serena, you know, who again is like very important to us. And she was doing us a huge favor by letting us use her, her dinghy to go, you know, take it to pretty dangerous area for a lot of reasons. So it was, it was a really brutal, it was probably the most brutal day of travel I've ever had. We got to ground or when we got to land, I was it's the, the one time that I've actually been close to like kissing, kissing the ground. I mean, <laughs> I was just so grateful to just put my feet on ground and know that, you know, everything was going to be okay. Oh man. But then that just started a whole, once we were on land, then we discovered that this area that we were going to, we couldn't notify anyone that we were coming, coming there because no, they don't have cell service and we didn't have any good points of contact there. So we're showing up with all these men and all this gear and there's no guest house. I was told that there was a guest house. There's not a guest house. So we have no place to stay. And it's now like the sun's about to set. Um, so we have to really figure these things out quickly. I think it was even like starting to rain a little bit too, which happens all the time in the afternoon there. So, you know, we're pretty bedraggled at this point when we get there. And then we have to quickly make these arrangements with people to like, okay, we're going to just crash in this space. We have like eight people, eight or nine people between the uh, the captain on the dinghy and his assistant, Serena, who's there to help with landowner stuff because that's, you know, her expertise. She was on the boat with you. She was on the boat with us. Okay. She came wow. across. Um, 
My, she's a brave woman. She is the bravest, maybe the bravest person I've ever known. Um, I was just on the phone with her last week. She seems like got stung by a stonefish recently and has not been able to walk for three months now. Oh, you can't get crutches there really. Typically it's difficult to find them. So she's just hopping around and using a wheelbarrow as a wheelchair because this, this it's a like really cryptic fish that's in the reefs. I think she stepped on one. She doesn't know for sure. She didn't see it, but it has this most painful sting you can possibly imagine. And it's so bad that her, yeah, her, her leg is damaged to the point that she it crippled won't her, be able basically. to walk for a while. Yeah. She'll, she'll get back to it soon, hopefully. Um, but she just weathers all this stuff. Um, so she was with us. And then my uh, good local friend, Doka, who has been with me since 2015, who has traveled across the country with me and is just uh, also just absurdly brave and so, so good with, with uh, understanding how to do bird research. Like he just intuitively gets it and is just adding more skills every year and is like asking a lot of questions about why we're doing what we're doing, even though, I mean, this is someone who, ha- you know, only has a high school education, which is even kind of rare there at this point. Um, and is asking like these really good questions about really in-depth, you know, like physiological research without really the tools to, to get there. I mean, he's just curious. intuitively skilled and yeah. curious. So yeah. he's actually, you know, someone who I'm working with now to... He wants to go to university to, to get a degree in biology. So, um, we're working together to kind of, you know, help him accomplish that. Um, but anyway, he, he was with us as kind of the, you know, everywhere I go now, I want Doka with me because whenever we face an issue, I mean, he is just the, the handiest person. Everyone really likes him wherever we go, but he also just, he just knows how to do absolutely everything from just building things that we need to use for research. Um, and yeah, do, doing all the detailed research things that we need to do and, um, is, you know, always game for an adventure. So he was along as kind of our, our local bird expert. And then we had, you know, these people who were familiar to the, the organized criminals in the area. Um, so we had a big crew showing up and the, the community just had to kind of identify a place for us to stay. So again, we show up to this place and have to find the person who kind of speaks for, for that area met with him. And then he just kind of put us in someone's kitchen. I set up my hammock underneath and like an incomplete, uh, house. And we stayed there for a few days while we were just kind of trying to go around and figure out what the next steps were. Um, so it just kind of, you know, so such stressful travel that you're just focused on just surviving and making it there. And then we arrive and realize like, Oh man, this is just the beginning of this three week expedition where we have very little idea of, of how we're going to accomplish what we want to accomplish, which is to get to these areas that presumably have this bird of paradise that's never been described by scientists before. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, uh, to, to say, to say the least, like, you know, one of the more stressful trips that I've ever gone on, um, at, at every step of the way. And so finally after, you know, a few days of just walking around and, and meeting with people, we kind of ascertained that that wasn't the right area to look for this bird. So we had to move on to another village. And then from there we had to, you know, make deals with, with everybody and, and find a way to get up to these more mountainous areas where we suspected this bird might exist if it was around. Um, so 
yeah, that leads to, you know, just a whole uh, different suite of experiences. But basically, you know, we're from there, we, we hiked, we hiked up to about, I think three or 4,000 feet, which doesn't seem very high, but it's a very steeply sided mountain. So we were hiking right from the, right from the beach up this mountain. So that's up a ways at that, at that elevation, we were, we were in from ocean to three to 4,000 feet. Yeah. 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 So we were, we were in the clouds there. Um, and we stayed there for almost a couple of weeks looking around and cutting a trail. And we were the first, the first people, the first of any people, as far as they knew, even including locals to ever go up to that elevation on that mountain. Um, and I mean, this just to get the arrangement to go up there was a little bit stressful because we, we knew that the neighboring mountain, which is the tallest mountain on, on that Island is called Oyatabu in the local language, which means forbidden mountain. So that one researchers had actually gone up to before. Um, but it took them a while, I think, to come to an agreement with the local people, because the custom is that there are spirits governing, you know, the, the, the peak, especially close to the summit. So if you bring a foreigner up there, then bad things are going to happen because the spirits recognize that they hear a language they don't recognize that, or they, yeah, the, the spirits will respond to a language they don't recognize and send, you know, uh, bad weather among other things, you know, there'll be a lot of misfortune that will come to you if you allow that to happen. So we were nervous that they were going to be a bit, um, squeamish about bringing us up there. They were okay bringing us up there, but what we realized as we, as we, so we built our camp, you know, at about three to 4,000 feet, something like that. And then we were hiking up, um, quite a ways from there every day, trying to explore further up and further up and further up. And each day as we got further up, it was getting closer to the afternoon. So it would naturally be raining in the afternoon. But unfortunately what happened is we could hear grumblings thanks to Doka because Doka, I think, spoke to them in, in pigeon. Um, so they knew that we couldn't understand. And Doka ascertained that these local people who are our guides in this area were concerned that the spirits had become angry with us because here they are the first ones to go up there and they're bringing these foreigners with them. So when we would go up higher and then it would start to rain then they would take that as evidence that spirits are coming for us and we should turn back. So it was, it was very difficult to be able to actually explore sufficiently in that area, both because the weather made it difficult, but also because we want to make sure that we're being respectful of that, of the culture and, that after we left, they weren't going to have, you know, if, if bad things tended to or just, just naturally happen after we left that they weren't attributing it to, oh, these researchers came and they angered the spirits. And now we will never accept people like them back in this area again. You know, it's a bit of a, a risk doing something like that. Um, so there, there were a lot of, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of arrangements to, to kind of, kind of sort out to, to get this done. But what, what we determined after so much time up there is that probably the, the locals who had told us about this potential species that was there were, were confusing another bird of paradise that's endemic. So known exclusively to this Island and the neighboring one, they were seeing it in certain light that kind of makes it look like a, another animal because it has this really iridescent plumage. I'm not sure if that's the case. That's just kind of my pet hypothesis. Cause I had some observations of this other bird of paradise that I kind of, my heart started racing a couple of times thinking, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is this, this new species. Um, but then, but then I'd kind of calm down and realize, oh no, it's just, I'm catching it in, in weird light right now. Um, so ultimately we were fruitless in, in 
getting what we wanted to from the expedition, but we ended up finding a couple of other species that aren't known to that island, and um, one of which could very likely be a, a new subspecies. So right now... So birds, right? Birds, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. Um, birds, so my field assistant right now is working on a on a, on a publication on that, that, that we're going to write together to, um, you know, kind of start, start a, an investigation into, you know, whether or not this is a, a unique subspecies on this island of, of a relatively poorly known species, um, in New Guinea. So that's, and that's kind of something that I'd like to do a little bit more going forward is a lot of this more expedition style work because, you can come across, you know, I'm certain there's still new species to be discovered there. Maybe not so much for birds. That might be difficult, but certainly for amphibians, for reptiles, for insects, you know, for most, most, uh, taxa, um, for most types of organisms, there's going to be, there are going to be some new species and new subspecies in some of these areas that just haven't been explored before. Well, so high risk, high reward is where you're going for there. Sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you, you, it takes a lot of, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of energy to, to do that kind of work. So I, we were carrying, you know, very heavy, heavy stuff up this muddy mountain and I consider myself to be in just pretty decent backpacking shape, you know, most of the, most of the year. Um, and I've never had an issue being able to just kind of put my head down and just hike, even if it's really steep and even if I'm carrying a heavy pack, but on this expedition, trying to get up to where we end up building our camp, my, my, uh, quad, one of my quads was cramping so bad that I had to sit down for a while because it was stuck in contraction for about two minutes. Um, it was really concerning. It was really painful. I'd never experienced anything like that. I couldn't bend my leg anymore. And, um, so, you know, working in, a, in that kind of environment, you kind of have to swallow your pride. And I'm the kind of person who would normally be really set on carrying my own weight and like, you know, ideally carrying the heaviest weight. Cause I'm the one who's, you know, leading this mission. I'm, people are going up here because of me. I should be the one who's kind of taking the lead and being like, okay, I've got a decent backpack for this. Um, I'm just going to load it up with the heaviest stuff and just, and just go. I made it like less than half of the way with that backpack. And was still having issues. And if, so I passed it off to one of our like local porters who we had hired to help carry things up there. And um, they struggled as well. But of course, they're way more badass than I am uh, <laughs> and, and way tougher. And, you know, that's their area. And they just they just dealt with it. Um, I was fine just kind of dealing with it. I'm, I'm happy to deal with discomfort. But mm-hmm. at, at some point when muscle, serious muscle spasms are happening. I was starting to get a little bit, uh, concerned that I wasn't going to make it all the way, um, which I've never, I've never faced anything like that before. Um, so it was such a relief when we finally got to an area that was good for making a camp. And so within, it's probably like 30 minutes they had chopped down. We had a team of probably about 12 people at this point. Um, so me and, and, and Jason as the two foreigners, and then Doka, who we had brought with us, and then everyone else was from this area and hiked up with us to help us bring gear and show us the way. And so they chopped down a bunch of trees and um, cleared a big area on this ridge. We had brought this massive, just this massive tarp up there to build our camp. And it took them seriously like 30 minutes to chop down some pretty big trees and set up this 
I'm trying to remember the dimensions of this tarp, but huge. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the size of a, uh, it's enough to cover like the a canopy of like a condo, you know, um, what, what we brought up there. Um, so pretty considerable, um, swath of land had to be cleared for us to, to fit this tarp. And they just, just got it done right away. I went to set up my hammock and I came back and already like the camp was built. Doko is already making, making benches out of local timber and making shelves. So he made this whole like bed frame for himself in about probably 45 minutes that he slept on. He made a shelf. He made this really comfortable bench. All of this was in the span of like a couple of hours. Um, and this is after, you know, we had been hiking all day and carrying real, a really heavy load up a really muddy, muddy, steep slope. Um, so again, it's like, you know, if, if it's a good place to go, if you're, uh, starting to get too, uh, you know, high in your own abilities to be tough and uh and strong because you go there and you just you compare yourself to the average person it's just wow ego i am so i am so weak uh i can't do any of this stuff you know so that that was where we called home for about about a couple of weeks just up in the clouds just really never seeing the sun and being cold and wet um every day looking for a bird that didn't exist probably (laughs) wow well, wow, this is just like, you know, like uh, you kind of see like, uh, you know, the, like the 1920s or 30s or something is what I imagine. Like you've got uh, one guy leading the way. Dude, you need a pith helmet. Do you have a pith helmet? A, a pith helmet? Pith helmet. Yeah. It's like a, it kind of almost looks like a, I've got one in the house. I'll have to show you. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's basically like uh, uh, they use them in like World War II, especially in deserts, like, uh, especially the English. It's kind of like a dome on top, kind of uh, goes back into the longer in the back, kind of protects your neck a little bit more. But uh, that's what you see, like, you know, if you picture like in the 1920s or 30s, like, you know, you see one guy leading a troop of on an expedition to go through a forest. He's wearing like a kind of a hat, a helmet. I think I can picture that. Yeah, now. I don't know exactly. Yeah. They're usually kind of a tannish color. Uh, but yeah. That would be that'd be smart, especially in like some of the areas we work in, you're walking under coconuts a lot. So if that's like a, if it's more a helmet than a hat, that would be really useful. Yeah. You could have a, a coconut drop on your head and just... <laughs> That could be the end. Or a pirate. You're more worried about the coconuts. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. I've got my pith on of Lots of hazards. Yeah. Yeah. And snakes. And yeah, I mean, there's just, there are a lot of things to consider when you're, uh, when you're heading to some of, some of these areas. But again, you know, like the true, uh, the, the true heroes here are just the, the people who live in these areas. And this is just their day in, day out life. You know, you can come back to the U.S. and tell someone the story and they think, wow, like that's really extreme that like you went to these places and did this. And it's like, well, I just visited for a little bit and I, it was tough and I was ready to rest by the end of it. But I'm, I know that those, the two of the people in particular who guided us up there, they were the local, like well-known hunters in that area who we were linked up with. And they're they're They said that they're going to keep using that camp because they're going to go up there and trap animals and go hunting and, you know, harvesting grubs and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, they might be staying up there right now and they don't have any of the gear that we had. We had the gear to like at least stay mostly dry and stay mostly warm. They're going up there in like t-shirts and shorts. And these are people who live typically like down on the beach in a tropical place where it's hot all the time. And they just, 
they just grin and bear it. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, so like, I just, yeah, it, it really is. It, it's a good place for, uh, for, I think, uh, a lot of young men probably to go <laughs> who, start, who start feeling, who start yeah. feeling tough. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, to check, check their ego and, and realize, you know, who the, who the, who the true badasses are, you know, um, cause they're just on a completely, completely different level than, than most of us are over here. Wow, man. So, uh, yeah, we've been talking for quite a while. Is there anything else you want to add? Like what else did, is there something that you want to, that you wanted to say that you didn't say? We went through a lot. Yeah, I think we, I think we hit on most of it. So I guess, I guess what I'd like to talk about briefly is that the, the end is here for me for, or the end is near, fortunately for my degree, for my PhD. So I'm done going to New Guinea for my PhD work, but I've become really invested in this place for a number of reasons. I think a lot of those hopefully are, are clear from this conversation. Um, conversation from, from this conversation. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go so, on. yeah. So, and a lot of it, it really stems from the fact that you can go there to do research. That's, you know, that's really fun for those of us to do this kind of research and, and interesting. And, um, but then you have all these, there's immense cultural exchange and you can really help with providing some sustainable sources of in- income in these areas, um, offer alternatives to these damaging resource extraction companies that come to New Guinea and just take resources and then leave the people in a really bad state, leave their land in a really bad state. Local people are constantly coming up to us and saying, like, what can we do about this? Like, we need money, but these companies are coming here and after they're done, we can't garden on this land anymore after they bring oil palm or after they harvest all the timber, you know, they, they really damage the land. So what I really want to do is, is continue to go back, but I want to build something more sustainable and build a a research station where I can ideally be based at a, a a university in the U S or Australia or New Zealand, or, you know, just somewhere that I would like to know, really like to live and where I could be at a well-funded institution um, and build a research station where I can bring some students from wherever, whatever country I'm based in um, to work at this research station with mostly local people who are there to either gain work experience, um, to help with some of the logistics at the research station, or, um, you know, who are graduate students at at universities in Papua New Guinea or undergraduates who want to do an undergraduate thesis and we can all kind of work together to to make sure that people have opportunities to, you know, really capitalize on the immense natural resources that they have and just the dearth of knowledge we have of just basic ecology in a lot of these areas. So that's that's really my my vision going forward is is finding an opportunity to 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 build that infrastructure so that it's it's self sustaining. And after I'm done going there, you know hopefully several decades from now, uh, that it's left in the hands of local people who own the land and they can kind of branch out and, you know, make sure that that resources are being used the way that they want them to be used for and that they can see sustainable solutions to some of the problems they're facing with, with the development that's currently going on there. Um, so that's, that's the, the, the long-term goal here that I really started to see my first field season in New Guinea, but 
now this last one, you know, my fourth field season, it all kind of started to crystallize because I knew it was my last time having this funded trip as part of my graduate research there. So I, I started to talk with the local people about what that would look like and um, started looking around, scouting areas where that might be might, might be good to do that kind of work. And I'm really going to do everything I can to make that happen. Yeah, I, I think if you can, you know, if you are going to go try to find a bird, you know, if you, I just think of like, that's a, such a small thing. If you think about it, like, yeah, that'd be interesting to go get that, see that one species that uh, nobody's ever seen before, but to put your life on the line to try to discover it. And now you're going to go and try to help people, you'll achieve it. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm certainly motivated. I'm certainly motivated to do that. And I'm motivated by, by the, the, the people there who, who want, who want me and, and others to, you know, come back and do that kind of work. You know, we've, when I, when I left, I had this very emotional goodbye with, with Serena and Doka, cause I've kind of been absorbed as part of their families over these last several years. And I told them like, like, I don't know when I'm going to come back here is, you know what I'm hoping to do, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to accomplish this. Um, so there were a lot of, a lot of tears, um, when I had to say goodbye at the airport. Um, but that's a good motivating factor when I'm back here to remember that, you know, they'll be fine without me going there. It's not like I'm saving them from anything. They're, they're, they're happy with their life there, but they also really enjoy working with me and working with my collaborators and, you know, having this other mission that they're a part of beyond just, you know, beyond subsistence living. And it's really fun and interesting for them, just like it is for us. And they're not the only ones who, who feel that way. And it's really just a lack of opportunities currently there that, you know, prevent people from being able to, to do something like that. So I'm, that, that's, that's going to be the plan is to, you know, try to, try to take the lead on that and, and, and build something that will, that will be there hopefully for, for a very long time. That's awesome, man. That's right. It's, uh, you know, to, to do something bigger than yourself. That's, uh, that's certainly rewarding. I yeah, wish you all the exactly. best luck. Thanks for coming in, thanks, man. Tom. Really, really good conversation. Yeah, really. Thanks uh, a lot. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Wow. Right? Wow. Jordan Borsma there, friends. Hey, remember that name. I think that you will hear his name later on, maybe sometime in the future. You never know. But uh, he's out there. He's doing all kinds of stuff while I sit in the studio. <laughs> Good talking to you, Jordan. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our sponsor, Moscow Brewing Company. Go grab a beer from them. They're good folks. It's good beer. But that's it. We're done. I appreciate you. Happy New Year. I'm Tom Cocaine. Over and out.